Pod Warriors are back. This is episode 14 in me and the Fig Gods ongoing series. And Jordan, do you think this could be the greatest podcast in the history of podcasts? I mean, this one specifically or just like the podcast as a whole? Because the answer no, this, is either this, way. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, this is uh, this is kind of like my dream podcast. Thank you, Jordan, in advance for even entertaining this as a concept. But it's going to be all Bret Hart. We're basically going to chronicle his career on pay-per-view in the WWF. So we're going 1986 to 1997. We're going to be talking about the matches he had, some of the storylines and behind-the-scenes stuff, the gear he was wearing, since his gear was always such a big part of Bret's appeal, and the uh, also the figures. You know, we obviously were we we love wrestling figures here, so we're going to talk about some of the figures that represent these iconic performances throughout his career. Um, getting into it to start though, Jordan, man, what does uh, w- w- obviously everybody? I think if they're listening to this right now, they know where I stand on Brett. Where does Brett kind of fall in all time for you, both on your uh, your rankings of the best ever and just as a as a personal favorite? So, I mean, obviously everything that he did um, as far as in the ring is, as you know, I'm a big in ring work fan. I'm a I'm a work rate guy, so Brett Hart definitely checks that box for me. Um, going back and watching a lot of his old matches, um, and, and like I said, we're going to dive into this, but it, some of it is a shame what they did to him. Like just going back and watching some of these, like how he was treated and stuff like that. It, it really is a shame. Um, but I mean, he's definitely in the top five for me as far as like personal favorite. He's probably not in my top five just because of. I'm my top five is a little different. I mean, obviously, you know, I have ultimate warrior in there. So, um, this, that's not a knock on bread. It's more just my personal opinion. So, uh, like I said, though, definitely top five in the ring. Um, one of the best to ever do it. So yeah, I'm excited to do this, but yeah, like you said, this is, this is your baby. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you, uh, drive and lead the ship on this one. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it though. Yeah, Brett is obviously my uh, my all time favorite. Very very passionate about my my fanhood for this guy. Um, I'm, I'm staring at three different pieces of Brett Hart artwork uh, right in front of me as we record this. You know, our son's name's Brett. We didn't. He's not named after Brett the Hitman Hart, but obviously we got the inspiration from uh, from the Hitman for naming him that. And I just love this dude, man. I've said you know him and Michael Jordan were kind of like my two celebrity role models um, growing up as a kid and. Uh, so they just they just had a huge impact on me as far as you know wanting to want to be the best at whatever I was doing. Obviously, you know I'm not a five time world champion in WWF, and I've never won an NBA championship. But I just you know both of them kind of I think the thing they had in common was that singular drive to be the best at what they're doing. And I try to just take a little bit of that, you know, just to kind of keep me motivated on uh, on do, on you know whatever I happen to be doing. Um, I just you know I like the guy from the from the start, man. Obviously, when I was first started to watch wrestling, Hulk Hogan. And Ultimate Warrior were kind of like the two big favorites of mine. But I always, Brett always caught my eye, man. I was always a Hitman fan from the first time I saw the Heart Foundation. And by the time he went solo, like it was a wrap, man. He was my dude. So I'm really excited to do this and kind of go through some of the highs and lows because he was all over the place, man. He was in matches that are completely forgettable. And then he's in some some all-time classics. So it's just going to be a lot of fun. Um, Jordan, you got anything else you need to express feelings on, man, before we start getting into some of these matches? Now, the only thing I was going to say is, like you said, he has been in some forgettable matches. And going back and watching all, 
and I'm, I'm probably going to piss you off with this, but going back and watching a lot of the Hart Foundation stuff, dude, Anvil really was the fucking Anvil for fucking Bret Hart. Like, he drug a lot of his matches down just because of he wasn't like the in-ring technician. He was literally just the muscle for the group. So Bret literally had to drag him along in a lot of these matches we're going to talk about. And I, I guess I never really noticed it when I was younger because I, I wasn't paying attention to that at that point. But watching it when you're older, it is definitely uh, obvious who was carrying this team by a mile. Goddamn, man. I was not expecting this to start with a shoot on the anvil. Well, I mean, it's not a full-on shoot, but dude, he... <laughs> I mean, let's let's call a spade a spade here. He was definitely dragging the team down. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason now when, when there's a hot tag team, people ask, you know, who's going to be the 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 Jim Neidhart or the Marty Jannetty of the team when they split up. So he, he earned that reference for sure. Um, but we'll get into it, man. Starting off, you know, these first few years are going to be the tag team years. All the way back to WrestleMania 2, 1986. This was the you know this was the WrestleMania that was in three different cities. Um, it was in you know New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. And the main event of the Chicago portion of the show was a 20 man battle royal featuring a lot of NFL players. And sure enough, it got down to the last two. It's Andre the Giant and Brett the Hitman Hart. And, uh, and and Brett gets dumped to win it. Andre throws him over the top rope down on the anvil. Uh, some noteworthy things about this. It was Brett's first pay-per-view appearance, obviously first WrestleMania. And the big thing is that they were wearing the blue and black gear of the hearts. So even though the heart foundation is known for that iconic black and pink, uh, when they were first starting out, they rocked a few different colors. They had some black and white gear, um, the black and blue that they wore at the show. And then there was even some black and red before. And, and according to Brett, obviously, you know, Brett, Brett's a good storyteller. We, there, there's obviously a little bit of kayfabe in all the stories he tells, but according to him, it was Vince McMahon. When he saw them in their black and pink gear, he basically said, that's it. That's you guys look and stick with it. And uh, that's kind of how it, 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 you know, that became their, their trademark. But th- what is your thoughts on uh, this battle royal? Do you, uh, do you, do you remember this one at all, Jordan? I remember watching it and my note for this was, this is the one with all the football players, correct? Or is my memory yeah, gone yeah, that bad? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The fridge, a few others in there. I think the fridge was the only real noteworthy one that was in there. I feel like, this is forgettable just for the fact that there's 10 football players in this match and 10 actual wrestlers. I mean, I'm all for them bringing celebrities and stuff in, but when you're doing a Royal Rumble and 10 of the guys have zero shot of winning, like it kind of ruins it a little bit for me. Um, I mean, having said that, the gear is dope, but the match itself, it's just there for me. It's not really doing anything. Yeah, other than the ending of, you know, Andre and the yellow trunks, yellow trunks scooping up Brett and tossing him over, I don't really remember much about this match, but it is pretty fun just for that because that was definitely a WrestleMania moment, as uh, as Michael Cole would say. As far as figures go, I'm actually, I just picked up the Battle Pack 47 set of uh, of Bret Hart and Jim the Animal Neidhart in the blue and black gear. Uh, do, you, do you remember that one that came out in, uh, I think, 2015? Yeah, I actually bought this one when it came out. Um, I'm pretty sure I got it at Kmart on the dying days of Kmart, if I remember right. Yeah, this was right around yeah Kmart's uh, death spiral. Um, the, these were back when basics were still pretty damn good figures, man. Like they're really the only thing you missed is the hip articulation and the ab crunch, but they were still totally like you know passable to be added. Your they're, they're collection worthy, I guess you could say. So really fun set. I'm hoping that we get the Heart Foundation as a series in the Coliseum collection. That just makes a ton of sense. And we know they played around with with chases in the Ultimate Editions. If they would make like a chase set 
with the uh, the blue. I think that would just sell like hotcakes. Yeah, th- this needs to be made in elite form. So I would be all for that. Even better if it's ultimate. So I'm, I'd sell for elites though. Completely fine. I mean, it, I, I definitely want these in elite form though. Yeah, we got the Andre in uh, from, from this match in the most recent WrestleMania Basic series. Pretty cool figure for that's for a great, basic. Yeah, that's a great figure actually. Yeah, actually, you remember he was in the yellow trunks, but black boots from like Elite sixty. I actually went and made a little you know quick uh, Frankenstein custom swap swap the boots around it to make an Elite version of that one. So. Uh, yeah, fun figure. Um, kind of big picture wise, man. The WrestleMania Battle Royale, they tried to really make it a thing back in, you know, 2014 through like about 2018. And it seems like they've kind of tapered off on the Andre the Giant Battle Royale. Do you think they should, uh, they should bring it back in a big way? Or are you cool with it kind of just fading off into the, the, the history books of WWE? So I liked it because it got a lot of people on WrestleMania. The biggest problem with it is, I mean, the prize was winning a trophy. Like, I don't think that's really doing anything for anybody. I think it needs to have bigger stakes to it. Whether that's just like a U.S. title match or an Intercontinental title match. Like, why why can't the winner go on and wrestle uh, The Miz or whoever is the Intercontinental champion on the second night of WrestleMania? I think that would be cool. Yeah, I agree. And I think that'd be a perfect way to do it, man. You, whatever, whichever show they're on, they could challenge for the secondary title on that show. Um, I, I like it for the same reason you said, man. It's just a fun way to kick off the night on WrestleMania. I think it's the perfect thing for for the pre-show. Um, but they haven't said anything about it this year. I think the past couple years, they've been doing it on like the Smackdown, the Smackdown or Raw before WrestleMania. So it's doubtful that we're going to see it make a comeback this year, but, uh, but yeah, count the pod warriors is in favor of the Andre being, being kind of restored to its original glory. Here, here. All right, let's go to 1987, the Pontiac Silverdome in front of 876,000 people. If you listen to Hulk Hogan, tell it <laughs> the, uh, the heart foundation that come into this is the tag team champs. But interestingly enough, they aren't defending the belts. They're in a six man tag match with freaking Danny Davis against the British Bulldogs and uh, and Tito Santana. So this was kind of just random WrestleMania multi-man tag. Uh, they did have some interesting gear in this. They rocked these like metallic all pink singlets that was kind of stood out from a lot of their gear uh, throughout the 80s. Uh, did, did Are you looking at any pictures of their gear from this event right now, Jordan? I am, and I actually do remember these. So, I mean, it looks cool. Like, obviously, great, great look for figures. Um, but yeah, unique nonetheless. Yeah, we uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. We're using uh, crazytights.ovh. That's kind of the uh, the source for a lot of these gear references and stuff, figuring out, you know, what Brett wore throughout the years. Because even though it was, for the most part, always pink and black, there were always little subtle differences, and it just evolved a lot throughout the years. So we'll definitely hit the link in the show notes. You can follow along with us on the various, um, the various sets of gear. So... There was a really, really cool figure set from that, that matches the look of this. It was in Jack's Classic Superstars, and it's a three-pack with uh, Jimmy Hart, Bret Hart, and Jim the Anvil. What do you think of this set, Jordan? Absolutely gorgeous. They could easily do this in uh, three-pack in elite form right now, and I'd buy it in a heartbeat. Yeah, it, it does look awesome, man. Jack's, even though like the actual form of the figures I'm not a huge fan of, they did really have some awesome, awesome releases during that Classic Superstars line. They killed it on packaging, too. These figures always look special when you saw them on the pegs. Yeah, and the other thing I love about it is that they kept the same color scheme and packaging style throughout the line. Like, 
There's no way you could do. I mean, they've come close to doing it with the ultimate editions, but even the ultimate editions have already had some some minor changes throughout the uh, you know throughout the short history. Same thing with defining moments; those boxes changed a little bit. Um, and the elites, like you know, every six or seven series, they change their boxes. Yeah, yeah. These are uh, the classic superstars are all awesome, but yeah, like you said, the figs just don't. The way you can pose them and stuff just doesn't quite do it. But very cool set. All right, so let's get to the next pay-per-view on the list, Survivor Series 1987. We are kind of going through these early years kind of uh, kind of fast just because there's a whole lot more meat on the bone once you get to Brett's solo career. And quite frankly, you know, like Jordan mentioned, you go back and watch these, a lot of these tag matches, man, are kind of uh, are, are kind of forgettable, dude. It's um, I, I, I really need to do some deep thinking on this if maybe I've had the Hart Foundation overrated as a tag team, man, throughout the uh, – Throughout the years, because I think they it seems like on pay-per-view, they ended up being a little bit less than spectacular outside of one match that we'll get to. I think they really kind of made their bones off like this. They look so good on like the squash matches and shit on superstars, you know? Yeah, you're stealing all my show notes for this because I, I actually wrote down the exact same thing. Is it because for this one, well, not this one in particular, but I wrote down for a later one. Is it just me here? Or is the Heart Foundation match is not as good as I remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get into it. But the Survivor Series 1987, they're in the same gear from Mania, and they were just in one of those classic uh, Survivor Series tag team matches they used to have, where it's five complete tag teams on each side. So you get 20 guys in the match. Um, what were your thoughts on the format of those that they had? They had them in the early Survivor Series, and then they brought them back the first few years of uh, a brand warfare starting in 2016. So on these, my thought is always, holy shit, that's a lot of people in one match. And it, these kind of, to me, feel like throwaway matches. I, I don't want to disrespect anyone that's in this match, but I mean, let's call it for what it is. These are these are basically throwaway matches. They didn't really have anything for them to do on the card, so they threw ten tag teams in a Survivor Series match. And I mean, for the most part, they are not the greatest matches because there is so many people in them. Um, but it's enjoyable to see, but definitely not something I love. And it's like a kayfabe phenomenon that your HP starts off at like seventy five percent of what its normal level is in any Survivor Series match. In these, it starts off at like 40% because you got guys taking the three count off of like a half-ass stiff clothesline and like an elbow drop, and they're just getting pinned, man. It's all about fucking clearing the ring in these matches. Yeah. Yeah, There was the match quality on these is definitely not up there for um, what we're used to when a lot of these tag teams are in matches. So it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. We'll take a little, another little Pod Warriors, uh, you know, segue or interlude, if if you will, and uh, discuss the future of Survivor Series. So obviously, this last year it was a great event, make no doubt about that. But it marked the debut of War Games on the main roster. There were no traditional Survivor Series matches, and kind of kind of calls into question what the future of the format is. Um, what What are your thoughts, Jordan? Are you cool with us just making it? making it war games here on out, or would you like to see the, uh, the, the traditional survivor series, um, stay alive? I love the traditional survivor series matches. So this is kind of heartbreaking for me. It kind of takes away from what this pay-per-view actually is supposed to be. Um, the last time to me, they had a great one was 2019. And I was actually in the building for that one when they did, uh, raw versus SmackDown versus NXT. That show was phenomenal. Like they, they threw it down. Um, they did it the right way. I just feel like, I don't know, man, war games being the survivor series pay-per-view at this point, just, 
don't know, it just seems weird to me. Like I, I don't, I don't really see a place for it on that card, but it, it seems like that's where they're going to go. And for me, it kind of sucks. I, uh, you know, I floated this idea when we did our review of the original show on on the main Chick Fil A show podcast, dude. I think they should combine it, dude. Do war games, but contested under Survivor Series rules. Yeah. Like, how cool would that be, man, if you could get eliminated and stuff in there? Yeah, because, I mean, don't get me wrong. War Games is cool. Like, it, it's cool as shit. The concept has always been awesome. But I, I just feel like taking away the entire Survivor Series portion of it kind of ruins it. So, yeah, that could be a good way to do it. Yeah, you could. And you could get, you know, you could have a lot of fun with, you know, guys getting eliminated prior to everybody being in the match. So, you just have different advantages and stuff. I just I think that'd be a cool format, and it, it would breathe new life into war games. Because sometimes war games can be a little bit of a drag until you get everybody in there, right? There's like there's no suspense until everybody's in the match. Yeah, and that I think that's part of the reason why some of these matches aren't as memorable because of that reason. Like first thirty minutes is basically a throwaway. Like you know nothing's going to happen meaningful in the first thirty minutes. You might get a cool spot here or there, but. Nobody's taking a pin, so I don't know. To right. me, it kind of ruins it. All right, let's go to WrestleMania Four, at the Trunk Plaza in Atlantic City. Another fucking battle royale and another second place finish for the Hitman. So in this one, it's down him and Bad. You know, the Hart Foundation are still heels at this time, even though they're starting to get a little bit of babyface reaction. But Brett decides to team up with uh, with Bad News Brown to. And I don't know if, you know, the plan was that they were just going to share the winnings or whatever, but, you know, they eliminate the last of the baby faces. And then in the words of Gorilla Monsoon, Bad News Brown just Pearl Harbors the hitman, gets him with the ghetto blaster, which side note, what an all time great name for a finishing <laughs> move. And, uh, and tosses the hitman over the top rope. They, uh, you know, Bad News Brown gets one of the all time great trophies we've seen in wrestling history, but the hitman proceeds to uh, to just destroy that motherfucker. And that was really kind of the the face turn for the hearts, man. Uh, what what what's your take on the WrestleMania four Battle Royale? I think it was a little bit more exciting than WrestleMania two. It's short, like that's the thing that I remember most about this match is it it's not a very long match. The quality of wrestlers not the highest it's ever been. Obviously, I mean there is some good people in it, but um, again, just it doesn't feel like they know what to do with Brett at this point in his career. Like he's just they just kind of throw him in a match and. Hope he can make a chicken salad out of chicken shit, if you will. Because I don't know, man. It just seems like he's even at this point. It seemed like he was above this match to me. Like when I went back and watched this, it just seems like he shouldn't be in this match. Yeah, and even as early as 1988, um, if you read his book, which highly recommend, he was. They were starting to float the idea backstage of him going on a solo run, and it just it kind of never took off. I think because the Hart Foundation was so over with the fans, Vince just didn't want to break them up yet. Because back in the day, tag teams stayed together for a long ass time. There wasn't always the rush to break them up like we see nowadays. Yeah. Um, go back to your point on the shortest of the match. You got to remember WrestleMania four was the one with the fourteen man. Uh, tournament and so you got a shitload of matches coming off that and that's tying up for basically your top 14 stars to keep them out of the battle royale yeah i mean i get the reasoning behind it it's just again it's just a match thrown together just to get people on the card so 
<laughs> yeah. I used to love renting WrestleMania 4 as a kid because you remember it came in that giant VHS yep. box because it was two tapes. You actually had to swap the tapes out halfway through the show. And even though looking back, like most of the matches on this show, on this card are dog shit, like it was still like, it was just so, it was so novel to me that I would have to switch tapes halfway <laughs> through the pay per view. It's like the first time you watch it and you realize it's only half over. The movie's not even over yet. You still got a second tape. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the gear on this one, Brett is wearing this uh, kind of a unique look for him. He, for the most part, his gear always looked like he, if it wasn't a just one solid color singlet, it would look like he had pants of one color and then basically like a tank top, a different color. But this one, he was rocking a singlet over pink tights, the, the black singlet over pink tights. What'd you think of this look? This one's weird to me. I, I'm not a huge fan of this one, honestly. I mean, I don't know. Just looking at the pictures of the, of him actually wearing it, it just looks so weird to me. Yeah, it de- it definitely just looks off compared to the, all the other gears that he's had. I I would say, dude, I would not sweat it at all if we got an elite in this look, complete with the trophy from WrestleMania four. You know, like a breakable trophy from this event. Oh, you would wouldn't be you neat. wouldn't be mad if they made another Bret Hart figure. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Jax, once again, shout out to Jeremy Padauer, the uh, the Godfather of, of wrestling figures. He uh, they put this out in towards the tail end of Classic Superstars. It was all the way in Series twenty six. They released Brett in this look. If you're looking to to grab this in figure form, um, interesting note. So you know this uh, it was Bad News Brown and Brett right here. Uh, Bad News Brown also kind of ultimately sank the uh, Stampede Wrestling, like the height of it in um, up in Canada. If you watch the um, the tales from the territory about uh, the stampede wrestling, you know, Brett's dad's two hearts promotion. It was really bad news Brown that fucked them over because I guess they had received a warning from, I can't remember exactly what the title was, but basically the equivalent of like the, the sports commission, uh, what you'd have in some States down here about the, ma- the matches being too violent. And they had warned bad news. He goes by bad news. Allen in Canada. They had warned him not to, uh, you know, have any blood or anything in his match. And he went out and still, you know, the guy who was, I think him and the guy who was wrestling both bladed bleeding like stuck pigs all over the place. And it, caused us some uh, just a shitload of fines um for Stu Hart and they were already kind of barely making ends meet the territory was it was you know admittedly it was already on its way down but that was like the death blow so kind of ironic that you know he fucked over Brett here also yeah definitely uh not a good look at all all right let's go to SummerSlam 88 this is the first pay-per-view with the Hart Foundation as baby faces and it would mark the first of three straight years that they're going for the tag team championships. They would face Demolition, Axe, and Smash. Um, Brett's kind of in the, the standard gear we think of when we think of the Hart Foundation, the pink tank top with the black pants and stripes and just, you know, the black star on the tank or the black heart on the, uh, the tank top. Jack's Classic Superstars had this look in Series 1. So right when they were kicking it off, they kicked off the two packs with the uh, with the anvil and Brett and I actually have that Brett figure. He's, uh, he's, Sheena's kind of taken him on a lot of our, our travels around the world as a little, uh, a little token. I really don't remember this match that much, man. I, I, I remember like in my mind, I can picture the entrances of it. Um, and I know Axe and smash got the win on this one, but I don't remember a lot about this one. How about you? So I watched this one back actually today. Um, and I did have a note from WrestleMania three, Jimmy Hart gets involved. And, and my note for this one is, Oh look, Jimmy Hart gets involved again, this time throwing the megaphone to axe for the eventual death blow to, uh, 
Hart Foundation in this match. Also, the best part about this show is Warrior pinning Honky Tonk Man in 31 seconds. Oh yeah, just an iconic, <laughs> uh, an iconic moment in wrestling, like by far. So you thought the uh, you like that better than uh, Hulk Hogan and uh, Macho Man going up against uh, Teddy DiBiase and Andre the Giant? I mean, yeah, dude. Ultimate Warrior ended Honky Tonk Man's uh, really long Intercontinental Title reign in 31 seconds. What's not to like? <laughs> yeah you're right dude that mega powers match the only thing that's good about it is afterwards seeing uh you know you get the first little seeds planted for the mega powers exploding um all right survivor series 1990 1988 same situation as the year before the hearts are stuck in the giant tag team survivor match you get anything to say on this one jordan mm-hmm. same thing uh, the only thing about this match is the hearts get eliminated in really weird fashion like Brett goes for a pin on somebody and the ref determines that Brett's shoulders were down. So uh, they get eliminated from the match. Weird. Told you. Sir, the Survivor Series tag team matches, dude. You, a, a cunt here blows on you in the wrong direction and you're eliminated. Yeah, not great. Royal Rumble 1989. They're on the undercard. Six-man tag match. Teaming up with Hacksaw to take on Dino Bravo and the Rougeos. Uh, what's your favorite Rougeos match, Jordan? Probably this one because it's the only one I can think of. <laughs> Dude, I, for- right, yeah. I forgot how over Hacksaw was at this time. His reaction in this match is insane. Like, it almost oh, yeah, blows dude. the roof off. He's probably, in 1988, I probably put him, or excuse me, this early 1989, he's probably number four behind Hulk, Warrior, and then it's a toss-up, I'd say, between him and Jake. Maybe Jake, Jake the Snake's probably a little bit ahead of him. But Hacksaw was always over with the fans. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy to see, though, because, I mean, obviously now we look back at Hacksaw and he's a great guy, and um, but I just don't ever remember him being this over, actually, because, I mean, I was four years old, well, three technically, when this pay-per-view happened, so I definitely wouldn't remember it. <laughs> yeah. WrestleMania five. This is, like, the first wrestling show I remember watching. I know my parents were... They were still young enough that they were like actively wrestling fans when this happened. And I guess they got it on pay-per-view or something because I remember watching it on tape like the day afterwards. You know, obviously this one's famous for the Mega Powers exploding, Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man. It was the biggest pay-per-view buy rate that they had since WrestleMania 3. The Hearts, though, they're on the undercard. They're taking on a pre-Rhythm and Blues version of the Honky Tonk Man and Greg the Hammer Valentine. What would you think of this match, Jordan? Uh... Decent match. I mean, it wasn't nothing out of the ordinary. It was just whatever. Yeah, yeah could have uh, been. It, it, did, it did not scream WrestleMania. It could have been on any episode of Superstars or Saturday Night's main event throughout the year. And shocker, Jimmy Hart's megaphone comes into play for the finish. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm starting <laughs> yeah. to sense a pattern here. We'll get to it in a couple of years, but yeah, Jimmy Hart being a thorn in the Hart Foundation side was a uh, was just a really like super long form story that they told. And I don't think they get enough credit for that, man, how long they kept that going. Yeah. Uh, they're rocking the same gear from uh, the previous year's SummerSlam. This one's got some sentimental value to me because as I mentioned before, my the first ever WWE show I went to, the main event was Rhythm and Blues against the Heart Foundation. Uh, we were front row for it. So I always got a soft spot for that. I was really, really excited to get that Rhythm and Blues Greg Valentine um earlier this year and i'm hoping that we get him in elite form in the legends line i mean i I think that would sell like crazy how about you oh yeah it it would be a hit um although the way the retros are selling it's not giving me a lot of hope that um they're gonna release a lot of these in elite form just because of the way these are selling so i don't i don't have a good feeling 
I think people are just retroed out though, dude. That that's my thoughts, man. I think there's just between Zombie, Mattel, and to be honest, like Mattel's retro offerings have been a little bit, yeah. I'd say I wouldn't say uninspired. The choices have been good, but I think the execution has been like really bare bones, man. You can definitely tell it's on a um, a bigger scale now, like the way that they're producing them. There's definitely a lot of um, issues in execution on some of these figures. So, yeah, yeah it's not not really that surprising, I guess. <clears throat> I just think I I think the hammer is super toyetic. Um, and obviously he's got, you know, even more than in real life, he's just like leg- a legendary action figure, you know, for everything that happened with that, the original Hasbro back in the day. And I, I think if they dropped that and maybe an updated honky tonk, man, I, I think people would be all over it. Yeah. All right. SummerSlam 1989, second straight year that, uh, they're fighting the tag team champs. They lose to the brain busters in this one. Now on paper, this should have been like. And just like an all-timer of a match, right? Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson against Jim Neidhart and Bret the Hitman Hart. But for whatever reason, man, I don't know if it was just... I, it could be that they were told, like, you know, give us a three-star match. We don't need you guys to go out there and tear the house down. This was just really underwhelming. And I think one of the all-time disappointing matches when you look at what could have been. Yeah, th- this match... <clears throat> sorry, this match to me is the definition of mid. Like, it just seems <laughs> like... Two of the greatest tag teams are just going through the motions. Like, it doesn't seem inspired or anything. It's just, they're just out there to wrestle their match, collect their paycheck, and go home. Like, I did watch this today as well, and I was really disappointed after I watched it because it's just, it's puzzling. It rock, man. I mean, this is arguably uh, two of the best tag teams of that era, and the match is just, it's there. That's about all you can say about it. One thing I can think, man, is we know that racist piece of shit Hulk Hogan back in the day would basically tell the bookers, like, you know, make sure our match shines, dude. And I don't think he wanted, you know, what I'm sure he thought was straight up undercarders um, to go out there and steal the show in one of the first couple of matches of the night. So that's that's I've never seen that, you know, explicitly stated about this match. But um, that that's that's my belief. And I'm going to take that one to the grave as far as uh, as far as the brain busters versus the Heart Foundation goes. Yeah. Moving on to November of 89, we're at Survivor Series. Now, this is a really interesting concept right here. They split up the Hart Foundation. I think, you know, again, like we talked about, there were a few different times where um, Bret Hart was kind of, they started to kind of get the gears in motion for him to go solo before it finally happened in 91. And this is one of the first kind of public displays of that. So the Hart Foundation split up. Bret's on a team with Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Hands of Stone, Ronnie Garvin, of all people, and Hercules Hernandez going up against Macho Man, the Canadian Earthquake at the time, not just Earthquake, Dino Bravo, and Greg Ballantyne. And Jim Neidhart was on a pretty badass team himself. He was with the Ultimate Warrior and the Rockers. Uh, what do you think of the thoughts behind splitting the Hart Foundation up for uh, – I'm putting them on different Survivor Series teams. I don't hate it, um, mainly because it gave Brett a little bit of an opportunity to shine on his own, more or less. Um, the notes I had for this match is Hart and Savage got some time together in the ring, which was phenomenal. I mean, obviously at this time, those are two, to me, two of the biggest stars in wrestling. Um, the only unfortunate thing about this is this is kind of a, to me, kind of a squash match for a Survivor Series. Greg Valentine was the only one eliminated from the Kings court team. So kind of unfortunate that Hacksaw and Brett were on a team that basically got squashed. I mean, it was a 20 something minute match but more or less it was a squash match all right i want you to jump in your time machine put yourself back in 1989 assume you're not you know a little four-year-old jordan yeah but you're a little bit you're already a smart at this age 
who are you putting your money on for the solo potential? Because at the time, a lot of folks thought that Jim Neidhart was actually going to be the breakout star um, based off, you know, all the charisma stuff in his promos. Where, where do you think your head would have been at if you're a smart in 1989 <clears throat> seeing the Heart Foundation? I definitely can see why people would say that about the Anvil, just because he his promos were always passionate. Like, he always seemed into it, and Brett's kind of more reserved and doesn't really bring a ton of heat when he's on the mic at this point. Having said that, watching these two guys in the ring, it is a stark difference on wrestling potential. So I still would have used Brett as the bigger star just because his in-ring ability was so much better than the Anvils at this point. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Like I said, the Anvil fit the profile of big 80s wrestling stars much better than Brett did, but Brett just always had that something special, even from the jump. All right, so Royal Rumble 1990. Brett's actually in the Rumble. Uh, enters first. He was the um, he was eliminated by Dusty in this one. And ironically enough, Brett was also the first man in the Rumble in '88. This is the one before pay per view, but the first ever Rumble, Brett was the first guy in. And you're kind of going to see some some recurring patterns where Brett's kind of the, the first to do a lot of really memorable stuff in WWE. But lasts about 20 minutes. Eliminated by Dusty. Um, I really don't remember a whole lot else notable. He didn't have any eliminations in this match. Do you remember uh, what, what were kind of some of your, not necessarily specifically about Brett, but Royal Rumble 90. What's your thoughts on this one? Remember, Hulkster wins this one by eliminating Mr. Perfect. I mean, we've went over the whole Royal Rumble thing. Uh, DiBiase puts on an absolute show in this match with how long he's in it. Um, yeah, Brett, I, I guess I didn't remember Brett being in it that short amount of time. I mean, he wasn't in there that long. So I, I know you said 20 minutes, but... I don't know. To me, he just... <laughs> it was filler. Like yeah. I said, he didn't have any eliminations. He was just in there. Yeah, it, but whatever. It's kind of just a whatever match. I mean, Hogan had to win, so... Yeah. The, yeah, the memorable thing about this one is we finally got the showdown between the Warrior and uh, and Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Can you explain to me in kayfabe why the Warrior and Hulk Hogan did that crisscross spot? No, I cannot at all. Just just for show, baby. That was that was only for show. <laughs> I'm not sure we've ever seen that since, dude. Like I just if, if like you said, if somebody that didn't watch wrestling was watching that, it would be absolutely impossible to explain to them why the fuck they're running crisscross patterns through the ring. Yeah, doesn't make much sense looking back on it, and hopefully they don't ever do it again because that was stupid. <laughs> All right, going to WrestleMania six. Uh, you know, standard Heart Foundation look here: black top, pink pants. He this is the debut of the uh, the hearts on the leg that he would have for his uh, to represent his kids. They squashed the Bolsheviks in about twenty five seconds. I think this is just something to just pop the Canadian crowd. Um, we talked a lot about WrestleMania six. You know, I don't think it's a whole lot needs to be said about this match, but sum up some of your thoughts and uh, and, and feelings about about WrestleMania from nineteen ninety, Jordan. Yeah, so my notes for this were a real technical classic clocking in at 19 (laughs) seconds. So this match was definitely not it. Um, WrestleMania 6 as a whole, obviously I still think it's successful just because of the main event. Um, I mean, it's to me still is the biggest match they've ever done. And it's going to be pretty hard for them ever to, to hit that peak again. It was literally the two biggest guys in wrestling wrestling each other for the two main titles at that time. And I just I, yeah. I I don't see any way you could ever get that high ever again. It was the definition of the irresistible force meets the immovable object. Because in addition to them being the top guys and the top champs, they were both as over as over gets, man. Like 
even the other time, you know, they came close to something like that, I'd say, at WrestleMania 12 and at WrestleMania 17. But at WrestleMania 12, the crowd was already getting a little bit tired of Brett. And I think Sean was definitely, a, you know, a couple notches hotter at that time. And same thing, WrestleMania 17. I think the crowd was a little bit hotter for Austin than they were yeah. for The Rock. So that's the other two times I can think of that they really did a big, like, straight up, we're putting our two top baby faces against each other. And it even came close to that. But like you said, they really weren't close to, to Hulk and Warrior. That was just... Just a really, really special match, man. Um, again, go back and watch it. Anytime somebody says those guys can't wrestle, like, no, go and watch that match. It It's a masterpiece. Yeah. That is literally the definition of two brick shithouses, crowd completely split down the middle for it. Just absolutely fantastic. The What's your thoughts on the heart attack as a tag team uh, finish? I like it personally. I think it's cool. Um, obviously I don't think it would be as well received in today's day because everybody's all about the flippy shit and flying around yeah, and it's stuff. It's a setup move today, but I thought it looked awesome, dude. Brett always got a tremendous amount of speed when he was running the ropes and just really put some stank on that clothesline. Yeah, they they did a really good job with it, but yeah, like you said, that's at best a setup move now. All right. Moving deeper into 1990, I think we were at our what I would say is our first um, our first true bona fide Bret Hart classic on pay per view. I'm staring straight ahead at some how handy artwork depicting uh, this match. Two out of three falls for the tag team championship. It's their third straight year, and they finally capture it. They defeat Demolition to become tag champs for the second time. I love this match. It's my favorite tag team match ever. Um, it's one of my, what I like to refer to as Magnificent Seven. I got seven matches that are kind of like just at the tippy top of the Pantheon in wrestling for me. And it, it's the only tag match that's in there. I just think it's great, man. Between Brett and Jim Neidhart, you got all three members of Demolition and then Legion of Doom get involved. It's got a hot finish. And I just love this match. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's best of three falls, Heart uh, Foundation against Demolition. As a kid, what more could you want? Like it, it, the match itself is so well paced. The finish of the second fall is a little clunky, but it doesn't really take away from the match at all. And this is still one of the absolute biggest pops ever for a tag match when the Hearts win the titles. Like if you go back and watch this, I I guarantee it stacks up to any tag team match where. Um, the titles change hands as far as pop like it, the crowd went nuts when they won yeah i think it was really similar to when steve austin came out and helped mankind win the world championship for the first time because you know as much as i love the heart foundation i'll admit the legion of doom were the most over tag team in the company at that time so i think when they came out to kind of keep demolition from cheating the crowd is already just on fire and then when the hearts actually win the belts that just like you know makes the explosion yeah, they did. WWE definitely got the cheap pop out of bringing them out because it it added to the match. Usually I am not in for a run in at all because I just don't. I think a lot of times it takes away from it. But to me, this one adds to this match. The pretty iconic look right here. They debuted the, the leather jackets. They're both rocking these black and pink um, jackets. The handle had a pink like it was kind of like a biker hat type deal. I don't know how we, what would you do? It's not a beret. It was like, I don't know. What would you describe that thing? The anvil was wearing on his head. 
Yeah, it's like a mixture between a skull cap <laughs> try to, and try a to keep it Try to keep it politically correct, dude, on like, how you would describe it. Like a it. skull cap slash bandana mixed into one. I, I don't know. It, I mean, it worked for him because he just looks like a badass. Were you going to tell him that thing looked stupid? Because I wasn't. Yeah, true. And as far as figures go, we got the ring gear of these in Elite 43 with Brett and... Uh, and the anvil. Um, the closest we've got to the the whole shebang was again. Shout out to Jacks, classic superstars. This was a pro figures exclusive. Now, I am not familiar with what pro figures was. That's it's not around anymore. Would can you explain pro figures, Jordan? Wish I could, but I don't even know if that is. You're basically speaking a second language to me right now. Yeah, if you go on Wrestling Figure Database, you can you can find this set. I'm I'm guessing Pro Figures was just you know an alternate to Ringside Collectibles that was around during the the classic Superstars heyday. That was honestly like my my kind of dark period for for being a wrestling fan and and figure collector. So I'm not super familiar, but really nice set. They come with the leather jackets. Um, I'd love to see you know Mattel try to get these guys with with the gear. That could be a great option for the Coliseum collection if they end up doing these. Um, Going back to Demolition, man, we've talked about this a few times before, but let's get it on the record on Pod Warriors. I was a fan of Crush being in Demolition. I know that their their peak was Axe and Smash. That's a classic Demolition. But as a six-year-old, I was like, holy shit, they got this new guy who's even bigger than Axe and Smash and just looks freaking awesome. Like, I, It took Demolition up to another level for me, even though the run with, with Crush in the mix was pretty short. Yeah, I liked it too. I think the three of them put it together so well. And I mean, dude, crush is just a gigantic dude anyway. I mean, he looks cool as is. So putting him in some face paint, some dominatrix gear just made him look that much cooler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they were rocking the freaking there. They were just a ball gag short of being gold dust in 1998. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't great. All right. So we talked about Brett being the first guy in the first rumble. The debut of arguably the most legendary wrestler in WWE history takes place at our next pay-per-view, Survivor Series 90. And right there across the ring from him, first guy to get in the mix with him is Brett the Hitman Hart. Uh, this was the, you know, the Hearts were teaming up with Coco Beware and Dusty Rose to go up against Rhythm and Blues, the Million Dollar Man, and a debuting mystery superstar who turned out to be The Undertaker. Um I thought this was actually a pretty badass Survivor Series match. You get the debut of Undertaker, who just looks freaking awesome, dude. He straight up plants Coco Beware's head, you know, in, in the middle of the ring with a stiff tombstone. Then him and Dusty brought to the back to get DQ'd. And uh, and Bret Hart and Ted DiBiase basically have like a damn solo match to, to end this one off. Yeah, this is a, a very significant match, like you said, because of The Undertaker. Um, no one knew at the time what, what they were doing, but it literally spawned the greatest, his, the greatest character in the history of WWE. So, um, yeah, like you said, DiBiase and Brett put it down in this match. That was basically my note is that DiBiase and Brett are owed, um, a steak dinner from Undertaker for how much they kicked ass in this match. What's really crazy, Brett, one of Bret Hart's, um, brothers died. I forget which one, man, you know, forgive me, but one of his brothers actually died, uh, the morning of this show. How wow. crazy is that? That is insane. I never knew that. Yeah, and Brett was, I guess, uh, he talked about in his book, you know, obviously he's close with Pat Patterson, so I don't think he meant any, you know, obviously Pat didn't know anything about it, but he talked about he was, you know, kind of walking around a little, you know, melancholy, a little bit sad backstage, and Pat Patterson walked around and was like asking him why he was looking like such a crybaby. It's like, God damn. God damn. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, man, like fucking stiff. <laughs> what were your first impressions of The Undertaker as a kid? Uh, scary as shit. Like, 
dude, there was nobody like this at that time. Like him coming out, like what the hell is this? Like just just a cool character. And like I said, man, spawned thirty years, and he was cool until the day he retired from wrestling. Like still to this day, Undertaker's cool. Like people go meet him, and he's not even wrestling anymore. He uh, so this is November nineteen ninety. He debuts. We went to a house show in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and I want to say February. It was between it was between Royal Rumble 91 and WrestleMania 7 because the main event was Ultimate Warrior fighting Sergeant Slaughter in a cage match for the uh, for the championship. So he had already lost. And we had like six or seventh row seats. And this was back during that time where as soon as, you know, somebody's entrance music hit, um, you, you know, if you were a kid, you could run right up to the rail, right? You could get on that like corner section of the front of the front row railing to reach out and get high fives. You know, this was back when security was a lot more lax. And I remember doing that for every single person until the undertaker came out. And like, I still have memories of my dad, like trying to get me to go up there to be close to the undertaker. And I absolutely was fucking terrified, man. And he fought tugboat. And in my mind, like he was murdering tugboat in that match. Like I'm thinking like, yeah, why is nobody coming out to help tugboat? Like, you know, tugboat's just getting his ass straight up whomped, dude. Yeah, it it's crazy going back and watching this because, yeah, man, just the fact that they even created a character like this is borderline Pretty fucking incre- dark, man. Yeah, I mean, at this time, dude, like you said, wrestling was about kids, man. Like they, th- everything had to be kid friendly. Like they had a ton of toys. The merch was all kid centric. Like everything was about kids, and they have this dark character come out and. Yeah, dude, I just, I remember watching him wrestle and I'm like, what the hell? Like, this is insane. Brett kept it going with the Taker at Royal Rumble 91. Uh, Undertaker actually eliminated him. I don't really got a lot to say about the 91 actual Royal Rumble. How about you? No, I mean, but like you said, Undertaker came, came right in the ring and eliminated Brett immediately. So I don't think we need to hit on that. But just so we're clear, I hate this show because Warrior loses the slaughter. Dude, so. I was about to say, man, that's my one takeaway. That is... That is definitely as a kid, that was the result that got me so fucking pissed off just because even as a a young Mark, I could identify that Sergeant Slaughter sucked, dude. He was just getting cheap heat off this Iraq thing. He was so freaking boring. I mean, you know, shout out to Sergeant Slaughter because he was a legend. He had some badass matches back in in the 80s and stuff before he took his long break to go be Mr. G.I. Joe. Had some really, really good brawls with, with Pat Patterson and some other folks. But when he came back in the 90s, dude, he was so boring. He was basically like the gender Mahal of his, uh, of his era, you know? Let's just call it like it is. Sergeant Slaughter should have been nowhere near the fucking belt at this point. And it's fucking offensive to this day that he pinned Ultimate Warrior, no less to win it. Like, dude, we couldn't have had some equality take it off Warrior and then have Slaughter win it. I, I don't know, man. This one still kind of pisses me off to this day. Thanks for really digging that wound in. <laughs> yeah i mean it set up a classic with warrior and macho man but i don't know man i feel like there's a better way to book it even if you would have macho man beat him for the belt at this show you could have hogan take the belt from macho at mania and then do warrior and macho at it's SummerSlam or something but but yeah even as a kid i was absolutely fucking pissed that goddamn sergeant slaughter won the world championship and was going to be fighting at wrestlemania against hulk yeah all right so speaking of which wrestlemania 7 it's the end of an era. This is the last televised match of uh, Brett and the Jim Neidhart as a tag team. And we wrap up one of the longest running stories in in the late 80s, early 90s of wrestling that Jimmy Hart managed 
nasty boys defeat the heart foundation with Jimmy Hart's, uh, motorcycle helmet as the, uh, the weapon of choice to, uh, to, to help them cheat and get the victory. Um, I thought this was a pretty badass match, man. Nasty boys could always go as brawlers. They were, they were a nice contrast to kind of the, the technical smooth style of the heart foundation. And I thought it was a pretty fun match. This was probably second place to me behind warrior losing to slaughter for matches that fucking pissed me off as a, as a, as a youth. Yeah. My notes on this were for the final time tonight, Jimmy Hart's dumbass cost the heart foundation. Uh, yeah, this is a good match. Solid match, especially for the Nasty Boys. I mean, they definitely weren't putting out technical classics, but if you get in the ring with the right people, they can definitely have a solid match, and this was one of them. Um, yeah, this is a distant second or whatever on this card uh, to Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man, which is one of my all-time favorite matches. So, Yeah, agreed. I would say it probably was the second-best match of that show, though. I think the only thing that was really in contention was Probably the Rockers against Haku and Barbarian. Yeah, but yeah, Macho Man and Ultimate Warrior is phenomenal. All right, let's get to the good stuff. of execution versus the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. This is the moment I've been waiting for as I've fought and crawled my way to the top. The next World Wrestling Federation intercontinental champion right here. Now gone. This one's underway. All the marbles at stake here. Everybody here is thinking pink. Both guys taking a lot of liberties here in this one. They know how much is at stake. They're not laying back. Hitman wide open on the apron. Right into the steel barricade. Perfect will be in the showers in 10 minutes. He's got him set up for it. Oh, no, no! from gorilla just an all-time classic of a uh of an intercontinental championship match one of the best matches in SummerSlam history just hearing that little highlight reel is really making me want to go back and just fire it up like as soon as we get done recording tonight yeah i i actually did watch this one man i literally forgot that brett was the first person ever to kick out of the perfect plex like just absolutely unheard of and the perfect drop in the leg drop and him countering it into the sharpshooter from the ground absolutely beautiful this is a masterful match like yeah i mean i i really can't add anything else to it that's not already been said just phenomenal match yeah it it was a great one man um shout out to mr perfect you know by all accounts his back was shot like damn near as bad as hbk's was at wrestlemania 14 this would be his last match for over a year um so you know he powered through it and put on just a straight up banger with to put brett over in a big way him and brett were, were very close backstage and i think it was important uh-oh would you just pop the top on man 
just a bush light. Nothing fancy. When Wait, we do these dude, longer, don't disgrace it. It's it's not just a bush light. That's a fucking bush light, dude. I mean, it is a bush light, and I know a lot of people don't like just normal beers. But when we're doing one of these long ones, like I can't do too many IPAs, or else I'll be shitting fucking like a Christmas <laughs> goose after this is over. <laughs> yeah, and the speech starts to get a little bit too slurred for uh, public consumption there towards the end of the show. But uh. Yeah, great, great match, man. Awesome finish. You know, this is Brett's first solo match on pay-per-view, which just goes to show you the faith that the company had in him to put him over in a big way like that because Perfect had been pretty damn untouchable up to this point. He'd lost a couple matches here and there, but he was booked very strong. Like you said, the Perfect Plex was one of the the most protected moves um, in the company, even considering this was a time where you really didn't kick out of finishing moves, man. That was hardly ever seen, so it was a huge deal if you were watching a match, uh, you know, back in this time period, somebody kicked out of someone's finish. Yeah, you could almost say uh, Mr. Perfect was booked perfectly. <laughs> yeah, he's also the perfect friend. <laughs> what? A, Jesus. <laughs> All right, shout out to Macho friend. Man. <laughs> Let's not get going down that route. I'll start, I'll start crying. <laughs> uh, Gear-wise, this is pretty significant. We see Brett coming out in the pink leather jacket. That's something you don't even see a couple times. So really bold choice for his first solo match. And this was also the debut of the uh, the Skull and Wings logo that would pretty much stick with him for the rest of his career, man. I, it never really, it doesn't really make any sense why he has a skull and the wings on his heart. You got any, uh, I, I, I've never heard him explain like to any real significance of that. You think it's just because just it looks badass or what? Yeah, I think it's just because it looks badass. And Bret Hart gained some XP points, changing his logo from just a, just a heart to this heart with the skull and wings coming out of it. I love this look like this logo is awesome. And yeah, man, I, this was, uh, this was a chase that I pre-ordered off ringside just so I'd have it right away. Cause I wanted this one pretty bad. Yeah. in figure form, they just gave us this in elite 94, no jacket. So, you know, they left some meat on the bone to maybe do this as an ultimate edition down the road. I got sabotage wrestling, um, on Instagram. They did make us a pretty sweet, uh, custom made jacket to go with them. So, uh, but yeah, very nice figure. And yeah, this is kind of the start of Brett's evolving. Look, he's still got like the straight lines on his pants and stuff. Um, he hasn't gotten too crazy with it yet, but you know, as we get into it, you'll see the gear is starting to slowly evolve and just kind of change up more and more. Uh, survivor series 91. He's in, it's really just kind of a schmoz of a match. This is team Piper versus team flair. Uh, and it ends in basically everybody in the ring getting counted out except for Ric Flair. The only real significant on this is he's rocking what is one of my favorite uh, leather jackets of his. It's the one that had the skull with the nail in its head and kind of like bloody and stuff. I just, you know, again, it doesn't really make sense in any way. There's no way to like to explain like why he's wearing it. It just looks fucking cool. Uh, Me and Jordan were texting last week about Chalkline dropping the 95 Brett leather jacket. I said they need to drop this one and I'd grab it and rock it to the Ace Hardware here in Oakland. (laughs) I could just imagine you showing up in your Crocs and your Brett leather jacket to Ace Hardware. <laughs> Hello, a pair of chalk line shorts looking like Billy Badass. I'd rock the Brett shades also. <laughs> well, obviously. I mean, got to complete the, fuck the look. Is this guy? <laughs> yeah, I don't really got a lot to say about this match. I think it was just, I think they were just looking for a way to get uh, Ric Flair on the pay-per-view and Brett's kind of just there in the mix. Yeah, I got, I got nothing on this one. I actually didn't even do notes on this one. That's how little I cared about this match. Yeah, it's whatever. Uh, Fast forward to less than a week later, Tuesday in Texas. He's opening the show defending the IC title against Skinner. Uh, This one's pretty cool, man. Like, it's actually a pretty good match. You know, for those who don't know, Skinner, a.k.a. Steve Kern, was a legend back in the Florida and Mid-South wrestling scene in the early 80s. He was in the Fabulous Ones. 
wrestled by his real name, Steve Kern. Uh, but most significantly, he went on to start FCW and ran WWE's developmental up until like the early 2000 teens. And he started what would go on to become NXT. Um, you know, Roman Reigns, Dean Ambrose slash John Moxley, Seth Rollins. They all came up through FCW before going on to NXT and the main roster. So I think a lot of folks don't really know exactly how impactful, uh, you know, Skinner is in, in as far as the, the grand history of wrestling goes. I love how this show starts and Skinner's already in the ring, doesn't even get an entrance or anything. Just cut straight <laughs> to Brett entering. Um, notes on this match. Skinner does his normal dirty stuff, grabs the chew can. Um, he does his finisher. Brett kicks out, ends with a top rope slam into a sharpshooter. I mean, yeah, like you said, this is a good match. Like th- there's for what it was and for what this show was definitely a good opener. Yeah, Skinner is still one of the uh, the only time he's ever had a figure made was in Hasbro form, man. Would you be down for an elite version of Skinner? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the dude looks awesome. Like, can you imagine if we got like the chaw bucket and everything with it? That'd be cool. Yeah, a little. Maybe you could have him like those uh, those maximum sweat figures that would sweat. Maybe you could just have like some dip spit that would come out of his mouth. All right, let's not go in reverse in what, what we need to have <laughs> happen. Like that's we definitely don't need that to happen. I think it would be cool, man. Maximum sweat. Good Maximum Lord. spit. Yeah, that's what she said. Wow. <laughs> okay, let's go to WrestleMania 8. Another all-time classic, man. Brett becomes a two-time Intercontinental Champ by beating Roddy Piper. Um, I, I fucking love this match, dude. It's, it's right on the cusp of being one of my absolute all-time favorites, but just a, a really, really fun match, man. Um... Uh, this is another one I went back and watched. Brett bled so much in this match with that blade job. Like, just absolutely insane how much blood there was. Um, the counter of the sleeper into the pin, absolutely iconic. Like, unforgettable that it happened. Um, Brett it's having, a finish that still gets used today, man. Yeah, and Brett having this good of a match with Roddy, who's definitely not known as a in-ring technician, just speaks to Brett so much. This This match is fantastic. Yeah, Brett has, uh, he talked in his book about the, or actually it was on an Instagram post whenever Roddy Piper passed away in 2015 that he thought that this match is really what cemented him as a main eventer in Vince's eyes. Um, You know, he'd had some success prior to this, but he said that Roddy basically, you know, he was a made man after this match. Um, A little bit of controversy with the, uh, the blade job, so... They, there was a strict no blood policy in 1992, but him and Piper thought that they really needed it to just amp up the drama of their match. And um, they, you know, the reason he bled so much is because they wanted to convince the backstage that it was, you know, a hard way. It wasn't, it wasn't a work. And they were effective, man. Like, you know, they all was forgiven. They didn't get any heat off of it and just, you know, got congratulated for a good match. If you remember later on in the night, Macho Man and Ric Flair both also bleed. They don't bleed as much, but it's clear it was a blade job. Both those guys were actually fined 5000 bucks on the same show that Brett got away with it scot-free. So another salute to Brett for a uh, you know just a, a, the amazing job he does. But yeah, love this match. The gear is really cool, man. It's uh, He's rocking some all-pink gear. Got that skull jacket again that we talked about. And this was the debut of, you know, for lack of a better term, is like the squiggly lines on the pants. You know, prior to this, he had like, it looked like almost like, you know, football team stripes and stuff, like classic classic style, like, you know, athletic pants. Now he's starting to rock like the squiggly designs and stuff. 
Yeah, this kind of reminds me of like when you're doing a creative team on NCAA football and you graduated them from the high school uniforms up to like the the Wolverine style or whatever they were called on that game. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely a cool look. And um, yeah, we just keep evolving with this gear as we go on. Do you think this is Roddy Piper's best match ever? Oh, I don't even think it's close, honestly. I think this is by far his best match ever, personally. You thought it was better than the Hollywood backlot brawl at WrestleMania 12? Oh, man, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Now that you bring <laughs> that, that up. That match has aged kind of well to me, man. <laughs> like, it's still stupid as fuck, but it, it, it's a lot of fun. Gold dust getting stripped down that's, that match. <laughs> Just, it, it's not good. Them driving the Bronco is hilarious, though. The OJ chase is just hilarious, dude. <laughs> like, it was just bizarre, man. Like, even as a kid, I was like, I was like, that's OJ's truck, dude. Like, what are they trying to do here, man? Like, I don't know, dude. It was, in some ways, I feel like it was like just way above its time, like, you know, kind of like punching way above its weight class. Like, they were going for like some really like high, like high, like satire and stuff. And then in other ways, I'm thinking like it was just there was no thought put into it whatsoever, and it was just like the dumbest fucking thing they did in 1996. Yeah, really great. For figures, Mattel has not done this one yet, man. We've only gotten one all pink Bretts for the it was the ringside exclusive uh, from War Rumble '93, which we're gonna get to, and then they're re-releasing that as an ultimate edition here pretty soon. But this was a little bit more basic version of that gear. Jack's uh, classic superstars gave it to us in series three. Just a really beautiful figure, man. At some point, I'm gonna go back and grab some of these these classic superstars Brett figures. So, I, I guess this is my thing with Mattel is. Brett had so much iconic gear, but first and foremost, Mattel needs to fix the head scan before we do anything else. Like let's, let's fix that before we graduate to all pink and all that stuff. Like just fix the head scan first, like start there and then we can work our way through it. But I would love to have this in elite form. I just, it's such a badass looking figure, even in Jack's classic. I don't know if it's Sweaty Bill making the calls or just somebody else that does the head sculpts. I'm not sure. But whoever it is, they're definitely a Shawn Michaels fan because Brett has just never had a good head sculpt from Mattel. I I don't get it, man. His hair is the biggest fucking problem. The way they drape his hair over his face, it doesn't even look like hair. It looks like like part of a shirt like is dangling off his head. I I don't get it, man. It's just so I've literally weird. had to give my figure that's the my Brett figures are the only ones I've ever had to give haircuts. Like I'm Brutus <laughs> the fucking barber beefcake, dude. Like that first ultimate edition literally as soon as I fucking pulled it out of the box, dude, I had the scissors ready to go and fucking trimmed his bangs for him like I'm fucking hairstylist, man. <laughs> Did you record it and then send it to him on Instagram be like, "Don't worry, Brett, I got you." <laughs> I should have, dude. And I remember Sheena was just like convinced I was going to fuck it up. Actually, did a pretty good job though, dude. So I'm gonna give myself the Barry Horowitz pat on the back. Like when your parents, a, uh, like when your parents tried to give you a bowl cut when you were a little kid and <laughs> fucking came out all fucking crooked because they put the bowl moved because you were moving. Dude, I just don't know what the fuck they were. The Ultimate Edition is the worst one where it had that big old glob oh. of hair just coming straight down those where he looked like the lead singer of the fucking Misfits, dude. It's like. What, why the fuck does my Bret Hart look like he's going to a My Chemical Romance concert, dude? Like, fix your fucking hair. <laughs> Got fucking emo Bret on next. Yeah, yes, exactly. I, I don't dude. get it, man. It's just, maybe Bill does have a problem with him. I don't know. I just, I don't understand it. And there's been numerous people that have, like, posted in a lot of the message boards and stuff, like, what's going on with Bret's head scan? Like, I just, I don't get it. How the hell does Jax do it that well and Mattel cannot get it right? I just, I don't get it. 
And I feel like they've been getting worse, dude. Like I'm looking at the um I'm looking at the 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 blue the blue and black one from that battle pack that came out back in uh 2015 and like it doesn't look like exactly like Bret Hart, but it looks fine, right? Yeah. It looks totally passable. Like some of the ones they have now, like it actively like distracts you from from the rest of the figure, man. Like I don't I'm not like a I'm not, I don't got like a head sculpt fetish, right? Like I, I don't have to have every head sculpt look like a tiny little version of the wrestler. It just needs to like not detract away, man. For me, as long as the head scans close enough and doesn't look fucking goofy, I'm fine with it. Yeah, just because the box art has his hair over his face, dude, his hair wasn't over his face all the time. Like when he's wrestling, his hair is pulled back because he's so sweaty. Like, why can't we just do that? Like this, this next one for SummerSlam 92, like his hair is not in his face and it obviously looks better. Like... Why, why can't we just do them all like that? I don't get why we need to have hair over his face. It's fucking stupid. Yeah. yeah, I get what they're what they're trying to have. But like, yeah, when his hair would fall on his face, it was like little wispy pieces. Like it didn't like fucking block out the sun like these do now. Yeah, like how would he even be able to see? Like it, it looks like he has like those vertical sunglasses you see in like futuristic <laughs> movies. He's living in the fucking Matrix, dude. <laughs> Uh, yeah. All right. Let's get to another instant classic. 80,355 pound packing Wembley Stadium to witness the spectacle. Heavy Boy Smith, you have got to be feeling enormous pressure going into this match for the Intercontinental Championship. Former Olympic champion Lennox Lewis in the corner of the British Bulldog. You will be stepping into the ring with your brother in law. The headman Brad Hart, just as popular as the British Bulldog, Peggy Boy Smith. Tonight I have the honor of being with my husband, Davy Boy, my brother Brad, giving them all the support that I give them. I expect this to be a seesaw. Ruling the battle. I'm very concerned, Diana, looking on. All right, you guys heard Vince and his best over-the-top announcer voice made one of the greatest matches of all time. And he ain't lying, man. This thing is just another classic. It's another one I have in my all-time favorites. Um, I'm staring at a canvas watercolor uh, painting by by Sam Evans uh, on my wall from this match. I love this one, dude. Main events, you know, what you can make a case for is the biggest SummerSlam of all time. And it's just gripping from start to finish. Let's let's talk about the the real meat of this match, though. The fact that Davy Boy and the Anvil had been doing a ton of drugs for a month leading <laughs> up to this match. Brett literally called the entire match in the ring because Davy Boy could remember none of it. <laughs> the fact that he wins is even more incredible after knowing that fact. Like, yeah, dude. The fact that Brett literally called this entire match in the ring tells you just how great the dude was. Davey being the first person to ever escape the sharpshooter. Another thing that's like, what the fuck, man? Knowing what we know now, Davey Boy and Anvil literally did not care at all. Like, they could give two shits about anything. I mean, it's pretty obvious at this point. 
And the fact that Brett was still cool enough to do this and call the entire match and was still cool with taking the pin is says a lot about him and his character, man. Yeah, Brett, in, in his book, he talked about it. This was one of those matches, um, same as Hulk and Warrior at WrestleMania 6 and Warrior and Macho Man at WrestleMania 7, where basically they had rehearsed the entire match several times. Like they, they, had, this wasn't one where they were like calling it in the ring. Like they had scout, they had, they had practiced every single move and uh, had it down pat. Cause you know, Brett just really wanted to put Davy boy over strong for his big moment. And according to Brett about five seconds into the match, Brett says to, or Davy boy says to Brett, you know, Brett, I'm fooked. <laughs> <laughs> fooked, man. I don't know any of the match. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, man, they, uh, you know, Brett powered through it. So yeah, like you said, man, the the match was amazing. When you consider those um those circumstances, it makes it even better. But just awesome action-packed match, dude. Just, you know, super technical. There's the drama of it being brother-in-laws against each other. And just a beautiful finish, man. Another one of those finishes that's been used um several other times since then, and it still holds up. You know, it was Nick Aldis and Cody used it. Um as the finish in their NWA championship match at, uh, at all in back in 2018. And it was just as great then as it was back in 1992. Um, what, what did you think of Diana's performance? So, you know, Diana had a, uh, she had a long interview before this man. What, what do you think of Diana, uh, and her role in, in all the drama on this one? Just absolutely over the top. Like, it's just like, come on for the cat's ass. What are we doing here? Like the acting was so bad. Sean, if you watch that interview right before the match, she's still talking and Sean Mooney basically just cuts her off. And it's like, all right, on to the match. (laughs) All right. We gave you two minutes and you're trying to take up 25. (laughs) Uh, Brett's gear in this match is, you know, I put in the notes that it kind of fully evolved, right? It basically, at this point, his gear is kind of what it would be for the rest of his career. Um, he's got kind of like the crazy lines on, on the side, skulls and hearts all over the place, and uh, just really cool. We we talked about it uh, from SummerSlam 91. This was the chase, and this was the mainline version in Elite 94. So just two badass Bret Hart figures that Mattel have hooked us up with here in the last year. Yeah, they definitely put it down with Elite 94 for, for Bret. So bravo, Mattel. Way to go. All right, let's go to Survivor Series 92. So something really, really important happened between SummerSlam and Survivor Series. Up in uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Bret Hart grabbed the World Championship from Ric Flair on a freaking house show. It was, uh, I guess it was maybe a cunt hair above a house show because it was taped for a Coliseum video release. But what do you think was the, the thought process behind having him uh, having him get the belt from from Flair on a house show like that? I mean, the, they obviously were taping it for a reason. Like, they they knew what they were doing, got to sell tapes and stuff like that. Weird to say that going back now. But, I mean, that I think that was the entire reason behind it. Like, you have to do some stuff at house shows, and I still think they should do more of this stuff now. Like, you have to make it worth people attending, right? You can't just throw right. it away and make it just, oh, you're going to see some one-off matches and stuff like that. I like this personally. I think it's really cool. I wish they would do it more. When Samoa Joe won the NXT title at a house show, I mean, that's an incredible moment. Like, yeah. imagine you jump to a house show and you're just thinking, all right, man, this is just going to be like any other house show and a title change. Going to end in a DQ or something, you know. Like, dude, that's that's awesome. Like, 90s wrestling got it done, man. They, they knew what they were doing, and, yeah, this is really cool. And, yeah, imagine being in the house when Brett wins the world title from Ric Flair. 
Dude, it's a legit core memory for me. WWF Superstars would come on at 11 o'clock on Saturday mornings. Mm-hmm. I always watched it because this is pre-Monday Night Raw. So, like, Superstars is where you had all your storyline development. And I remember turning on on a random Saturday, and the show starts with me and Gene Okerlund announcing that he's interviewing the new world champion, Bret Hart. And I remember freaking out, running into the kitchen, like, yelling at my mom, like, Bret's the champ. Bret's the world champ. I'm, you know, looking back, I'm sure she was like, who gives a fuck, dude? But uh, <laughs> I just remember that surprise and that feeling of, like, like I said, turning on the turning on my TV and randomly Bret Hart was the champ, man. It was, uh, it was just freaking beautiful, man. Um, goes into this pay-per-view. We get what was, re- they really kind of undersold it. They didn't make a big deal out of this match. It was basically a glorified exhibition match as far as the build and stuff goes, but it was the intercontinental champion, Shawn Michaels, ironically enough, having his first showdown on pay-per-view against the Hitman. Um, This is definitely the Jordan Wells special work rate match of the night. 30 minute, absolute banger. Um, Brett eventually wins with the sharpshooter. Man, talk about the start of something special, though, between him and Sean. Obviously, it ends poorly. We'll get to that later. But, dude, these guys just put it down when they're in the ring. They just had so much chemistry when they wrestled. It, everything was clean. There was, it, it never seemed like there was a dull moment in their matches. It just, it always felt like they knew the next step in every match. So, I love watching Sean and Brett wrestle. Like I said, unfortunately, it came to the, the end the way it did because. Dude, this is like one of my favorite feuds of the 90s. I, I love Brett and Sean, I think. And I, I like that you have become more of a Shawn Michaels fan because, dude, him and Brett just, they put it down every time they wrestled. I mean, no matter who they were wrestling, Brett and Sean were carrying the match. So it, them being in the same match together, you know, it's going to create just awesome chemistry. Yeah, Brett had described it on the the Rivalries DVD that came out, I believe 2013 or 2014 of him and Sean. He said that, you know, he thought him and Sean were basically like wrestling soulmates. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just a shame that they couldn't get along better than they did because they would have had so many more all-time classics, man. And it really is, uh, you know, just I, I think they were just kind of like, you know, as, if, as star-crossed lovers, man. That's kind of what they were in, in the wrestling world, dude, because they were just polar opposites on the way they carried themselves and everything behind the stage and kind of their philosophies towards the business. But like you said, when that bell rang, these guys made magic every time they were in there together. Yeah, dude, it, it gets used a lot, but I mean, these guys were equals in the ring. Like, you, and you don't get to say that often about either one of these guys against their opponent. But yeah, when they got to wrestle together, they they just knew what to do and they knew how to do it. And yeah, like, like I said, there was never a dull moment in their matches. It was just always awesome. This is kind of my key. Like when I hear Survivor Series '92, man, the thing I think about is it's it just such a like a warm memory for me dude is you know bret hart celebrating with santa claus and the fake snow coming down from the roof yep. after he uh wins this match doesn't he have a promo backstage with santa too eventually i think that was like a coliseum video exclusive i don't okay. think that's on the actual pay-per-view broadcast but yeah that's out there dude like they were just they were just really making him just straight up white meat baby face all yeah. the way yeah they really leaned into it that night <laughs> all right let's go to Royal Rumble 1993. Uh, this is another one similar to the match with Sean, man. Kind of not not a huge build. This is kind of just like a flavor of the month type challenger. Uh, it's Razor Ramones. Uh, his second match on pay-per-view. He had been in the big tag match at the Survivor Series against Mr. Perfect and Macho Man after team of Ric Flair. But we get Razor and Brett uh, for the World Championship on the undercard of Royal Rumble 93. I think... 
I think this gets lost a lot for Razor's career about how big this is that he's actually wrestling Bret Hart for the title this early in the card on Royal Rumble. Match is it, it's a great match. It uh it starts off really hot. Razor comes out like a ball of fire. It slows down a lot more to Razor's pace as it goes on, and then Bret speeds it up at the end. Um, yeah, it's just it's awesome. Um, Razor hits a near pinfall and Brett turns it into the sharpshooter. And dude, these guys had a lot of chemistry too, man. I liked watching these guys wrestle each other. It was just, it was really good. Razor was just so fluid in the ring. Like for a big guy, he just, he moved so damn well, even against the smaller guys. Like it really is a shame. I mean, obviously we obviously know what happened, but it's a shame Razor never won the big belt in WWE because he definitely deserved it. The dude could work with anybody. Dude, and WCW, man. I feel like with the whole breakup of WCW, dude, he kind of, he could have been like the Jay Uso, like, you know, to use a modern day, um, you know, comparison, dude. He could have, because I felt like he was always, even though Hogan was the bigger star and obviously Kevin Nash is super impressive being seven foot tall and, you know, big sexy with the blonde hair and everything, dude. But I thought he was always like the emotional like center of the NWO, right? He's who the fans love. He's the one who did the, you know, WCW or NWO survey. And like, I just feel like if he would have got a big baby face run out of like the breakup of the NWO, he could have been, like you said, he could have been a world champ. Yeah. I hate it that it always seemed like he was the bridesmaid and Hogan and Nash were the bride and groom. Like they always got the, the big matches and they always got the big pushes and Razor was just, he was always there on their side, but he, he never got to do anything that was like over the top meaningful. Like he helped end Goldberg streak, obviously with the cattle prod. And I mean, it, it really does suck, man. He, he yeah. definitely should have got the big bell. It really, and in, in, w, in WWF, he was always just intercontinental champion guy, you know, four time intercontinental champ, one of the best IC champs of all time. So nothing to be ashamed of, but it feels like it could have been a little bit more. And he, and he's been on record on, if you listen to some of the podcasts he did with, he had a really good one with stone cold, man. They had about a two hour interview back in 2014. And he talked about how, you know, he was just never a mark behind the scenes. You know what I mean? And he, and he had a good mind for the business. So he was always cool to, to take a back seat if it made for a better story. And I feel like maybe if he was a little bit more selfish, uh, you know, maybe we would have seen him have a little bit more, more success as a, as a solo star. Should have been more damn selfish. (laughs) <laughs> we'll we'll get to that you know in a year from now in uh in podcast time uh but yeah good match like i said similar to sean it's kind of like flavor of the month type challenger i don't think anybody really thought razor had a real chance of walking out with the belt do you want to talk about brett's look from this so this is you know affectionately referred to as the pink and black attack there's a legendary ringside collectibles exclusive figure of this and now it's getting remade as an ultimate edition um all pink gear you know got some splatter got this crazy pink jacket uh like dude just one of brett's best looks ever for sure yeah um so since since we're looking at the figure again with the goddamn hair like why dude why is that fucking necessary it looks stupid as shit like well the base head sculpt is okay yeah the base head sculpt is fine but that dumbass one up top where he looks like cousin it is fucking (laughs) stupid like dude come (laughs) on man can we make some effort out of this does anyone actually think that looks good like it looks stupid like i said somebody in mattel hates brett dude I don't get him. This is a dope figure, though. I I love the ringside exclusive, and I'm really excited to get this one. 
Yeah, it should be hitting target pretty soon. So uh, hopefully we get that. Maybe we can do a fig hunt for WrestleMania weekend when you're here. Oh, yeah. Fig got on a fig hunt in Tennessee. Let's get to what I call the original cash-in. My Uncle Domo issue a challenge. If any intestinal fortitude, you would accept my Uncle Domo challenge. Come on! Come on, you yellow belly! Come on! So Fuji says his Yokozuna's Center's issuing a challenge to Hulk Hogan. The Hogan is more concerned with helping his friend Bret Hart. We need one more second. We will put on a white belt. Right now. He says, Fuji says, right now. Don't put the title on the line right now. Come on. Let's go. You got any cut? Let's do it. Come on. Mr. Fuji has said that they will put the title on the line right now against the holster. To me, this is one of the most cringe moments in WrestleMania history, man. Just what a shit way for for Brett's first title reign to end. Like, I feel like they made Brett the equivalent of the fucking guy sitting in the corner of the hotel room holding the camera while his wife's getting her fucking guts bashed in. Wow. Jesus. (laughs) Too stiff? Oh, my God. Didn't know that's where we were going, but... Am I lying? Tell me when I start lying. Dude, it's just yeah. I'm I'm not a fan of this at all. I fucking hated this when it happened. And Hogan always got to get his shit in and fucking win the match, dickhead. I wouldn't have had as much issue with it if they didn't have like if if Brett just fucking rolled out and went to the back and then Hulk came out and challenged him. I wouldn't have as much issue with it. But the fact that you know Hulk had to come out and console Brett, even though they never had any established prior relationship. And then Brett had to kind of give him like the thumbs up to go and fight Yokozuna. Like it just, ugh, dude, I just thought like they made Brett look like shit here. Let's have a conversation though about what what really needs to be pointed out about what we just listened to. We need to bring Yellow Belly back. Like, come on, you Yellow Belly, quit being a gutless turd. <laughs> it is just a good insult, man. It just cuts to the bone. Yeah, I I, I liked this Brett and Yoko match, like. I, it I is think fun, dude. It's fun. Like, there's some cool spots. Brett trapping Yoko's leg in the ropes. He did a lot of um, moves off the ropes, too. He did a bulldog, a clothesline, an elbow had drop. a wicked clothesline, dude, yeah. But Yoko I wanna, was really athletic at this time, too. I, I want to talk about the ending of this match, though. Am I the only one that is confused how Salt in the Eyes gets a three count? Like, he's so disoriented, he doesn't know he's being pinned and can't kick out. 
I don't, dude, it's just a lot. I think for it's me. just the pain, dude. That was the thing. We haven't seen that in a long time. The salt in the eyes has definitely been retired, but it, at the time, it was a legit finish, dude. And in kayfabe, I think wrestlers have just, you know, they watched enough tape that they began to to focus on like pain management techniques to where it no longer bothers them as much as it did. But but back in the day, it was a totally logical finish. Yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't age well, <laughs> I guess. I Plus, just... we didn't know it was actually salt, dude. It could have been fucking cocaine, dude. He had in that fucking well, thing. Well, if it was cocaine, Brett definitely would have kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, just I don't know. I mean, it's in a way, dude, it's hard for me to criticize because if you go back and watch, the crowd pops like fucking crazy, dude. Oh, yeah. it, it, so there's some interesting things about this WrestleMania 9. It was in Las Vegas. Um, really just iconic stage design. I, I love the stage design from that, from that show, but it was at C, it was at the, uh, the garden arena of Caesar's palace, the outside arena outside the, uh, the casino and the fans, it wasn't a wrestling fan audience, dude. It was mostly that they had a lot of specials going that basically if you made reservations at the hotel that week, they were putting, you were getting tickets to WrestleMania. So it was a lot of, it wasn't a lot of hardcore wrestling fans. It was a lot of just, you know, you know, people who may not even been fans at all. And probably Hulk Hogan was the only person on the card that they knew because it definitely got a pop. So I feel like that may have played a part in why they um, they booked this finish like they did. But but yeah, just truly one of the most controversial endings to WrestleMania that we've ever seen. And it went nowhere because the very next show, Brett or uh, yeah, the very next show, Brett jobbed and or excuse me, Hulk jobbed to Yokozuna and dropped the belt back. Um, I don't know, man. What's what's kind of your uh, your ultimate verdict on this one? The match itself or the actual pay-per-view? Because I, I don't... The, uh, the, the the ending. I hate it. I, I really do. I just... I think it's... It hasn't aged well at all. I, I get it. Like like you said, I get it. This is not like a full-on wrestling crowd, which that, that in itself makes it fine, right? But I just hate how they just do everything for Hogan. I, I don't know, man. It's just... It's a lot for me that they, they literally at this point would do anything to make him happy and sucks man it really does and this would have been a great moment for brett to win the title from yokozuna but instead oh hogan's already wrestled once let's bring him back out here after his fucking terrible match <laughs> with the mega maniacs like i it's fucking stupid i just i, I don't like it i hate this pay-per-view as a whole there's other than the set design this pay-per-view does nothing for me i mean Every match, if you look at like ratings of every match, like almost every match is like a one star or lower. I mean, Giant Gonzalez and Taker is disgusting. Like, it's bad. I think the best match on this show is the Steiners versus the Head Shrinkers, and it's a fine little tag match, but it's nothing to write home about. This is a really bad show. Like, it's it's just not good at all. Going to the look for Brett, he did have some unique gear. It was all pink gear with white trim. You know, he always had, he typically would have black trim on his gear, but he had white on this one. So it kind of set off a little bit and it was like a hotter shade of uh, pink. The closest we got to this in figure form was in Classic Superstars 2-Pack Series 10. They did Brett and Yoko and being Jax, they kind of botched uh, some of the details on it. It still has black outline on his gear, but still a pretty fun figure set, even though Jax did an absolutely horrible job at the super heavyweights. Yeah. Yoko looks so weird. It's just, <laughs> it, it, I mean, this is definitely where Jet, like, look how small Yokozuna's head looks on that body. Like, looks like, he yeah, has the body's like a, just ridiculous, dude. Like, they went overboard on it. Yeah, it's not good, but yeah, I think we can move on from WrestleMania 9 pretty easily. All right, you ready to take a little beverage break? Yeah. Carnal, carnal. 
for the beverage break you know this is a staple of the uh the chick Foley show but we absolutely cannot do an episode of pod warriors without getting boozed up that's part of the charm you guys love to hear it we get a little bit more loose on the mic you've already heard a little bit of that so far um i think this was the debut of drizzy drake on the uh the chick Foley show universe right i don't think we've heard him before on here have we jordan yeah, i don't think we've ever done a drake song so welcome to yeah, the pod was, uh, drake that was the uh, the instrumental from uh, Cameras from uh, Take Care 2011. One of the all-time great hip-hop albums, I think. Yeah, it, I love that album. I still play it to this day. Yeah, a lot of fun, man. I, I just so many good bangers on that one. We did Drake to try tie into the uh, you know the whole Canada thing with the Hitman. If you remember, Brett actually had an IG post. Somehow he had gotten his hands on an OVO T-shirt and uh, basically gave a big salute to Drake whenever Drake conquered Meek Mill in their beef in uh, 2015 2016. Talk about a squash. Yeah, that really wasn't even close at all. And I like this is coming from somebody that likes Meek Mill too, and it still was not close. Yeah, Meek Mill just it, Drake was just uh, ahead of the game on that one. Uh, but let's get into it, Jordan. What are you drinking, man? Uh, again, just cracked the top, pop the top on another Bush Light. Just an all time classic. Probably my favorite beer ever. So I, I drink these, if not daily, every other day. So it's definitely one of my sentimental favorites. Miller Light is my go to. Like if I can only have one beer the rest of my life, it'd be Miller Light over Bush. But my dad's a my dad's a, a bush light guy. Um, they go down easy, like they're you know ice cold bush lights tough to beat. So yeah, I, I'm right there with you, man. I will bring the creativity for this one. I am drinking Dragon's Lair. This is by 450 North Brewing Company out of Columbus, Indiana. This is their part of their Slushy XL series. It's a smoothie style sour ale with dragon fruit, peach, and raspberry. So. This thing is, it's actually got actual fruit in it. It says on the can to drink as fresh as possible uh, due to the large amount of fruit in this beer. It is like, a, um, do you ever, do you remember when they used to, I don't think they even make them anymore, Jordan. You remember when we were kids and they had those Bacardi like frozen daiquiri mixes yeah. that like our parents would get? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what this kind of tastes like, but in beer form. Interesting. Do you actually? I don't even know if you would call this a beer, dude. It's it's purple in the cup, man. It's uh, it's almost like more of like a cocktail than a beer. But it literally is like the texture of a smoothie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very smooth. Um, I've had a couple of these beers in recent months, dude. I think this may be the last time I get them, dude. I'm actually not a huge fan of this style of beer, man. I feel like I don't know if my palate's kind of off. Or if it's a mental thing, I feel like I'm always getting just like the fucking vaguest hint of like a note of like sour milk when I drink these things, man. Uh, wh- what about you? Where are you at with the smoothie style beers? I don't do these. Um, my wife, Ari, lo- absolutely loves sour beers and smoothie style beers. So she'd be- definitely be the better person to talk to on this. I know she likes the Drecker ones. Like she always says those ones are really good. Um the other problem with those, dude, a four pack of those is like twenty five bucks a lot of times. Bro, this was thirty two bucks, dude. <laughs> and like, you know, 
when I'm buying, uh, I, I mean, you know, not that I'm balling, dude, but I've just, I bought it so much that I really don't pay a lot of attention to the price tag when I buy craft beer. I just assume they're going to be pricey, right? Like typically a four pack, you're looking at like 18, 19 bucks, man, for some of the pricier ones. But yeah, I didn't even check it and I got to the cash register. Guy ring it up $32 and I'm like, what the fuck, man? I mean, obviously I'm not going to walk away, right? Like I got pride. I'm, I'm a dude, but, uh, but I was just like, Jesus Christ, dude. Um, yeah, but for, for me, dude, it's because they always, the thing that makes them smoother, they put a little bit of lactose sugar in there. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I don't know if it's just in my head now, but I feel like I'm always just getting a little bit of a dairy note on the the tasting on these. And it's just a little bit of a turnoff for me. That's interesting because I got some beers during Christmas and I didn't, I don't really like beers that have lactose in them. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I got three of them and I thought they all tasted like shit. Like I got the exact same thing that you were getting. It just, it tasted like old milk to me. Like, I don't yeah. know. And it, and these were all hazy IPAs with lactose. So you would assume like the IPA flavor would take it over. And then I dumped it out at the end and it was just, I don't know. It was gross at the end. It was just really thick and nothing good about it. So I think I'm done with the lactose uh, flavored beers for now. I think for the, I think the lactose beers, I think you really got to have them like as fresh as possible because i had some um back when the book of boba fett came out they uh, o'connor brewing in norfolk this is when we still lived in virginia they did the beer of boba fett and it was a it was a milkshake ipa it wasn't a sour but it was an ipa with lactose and it was pretty good but i'm talking like i was at the brewery the day the cans dropped and got like one of the first four packs off the line and drank those and those were pretty good so maybe, maybe that's it but yeah for for the time being i think i'm off the uh the lactose beers man i guess so i the um the beers you sent me i think it was before last wrestlemania when you sent me the saturday morning one with the the lucky i'm pretty sure that one had lactose in and that one was fine i didn't mind that one but i don't know man i just maybe some of them have sat on the shelf too long because people see that they're 32 dollars for a four pack and they're not willing to drop eight (laughs) dollars on a beer so that's probably been sitting there since last summer Yeah. And, and like you said, you mentioned it was the smart mouth cereal pack that we, uh, that, that came out, you know, the, the nostalgically delicious was like the, um, that was like lucky charms branded one. That was kind of the key, but it was vague. It was like the, the flavors were kind of like faint, dude. It was like, like you got a hint of lucky charms flavor and like cereal flavor, but that was it. I feel like some of these, um, crap breweries feel like we just got to go harder, right? We got to be more extreme where I feel like maybe like a little bit of that kind of flavor could go a long way, but it's really easy to overdo it. Yeah, that's that's probably why it's just one of those things. But all right, you ready to get back into some wrestling? Absolutely. All right, so we have moved on from the WrestleMania nine debacle. We're into the King of the Ring nineteen ninety three. Now, this to me is arguably pound for pound Brett's greatest performance ever on pay per view. He fights Razor Ramon in a really, really awesome match in the first round, which is coincidentally Razor Ramon's last pay-per-view match as a heel in WWF. Fights Mr. Perfect in a really great rematch from SummerSlam 91. Uh, Some folks actually think this surpasses SummerSlam 91. Um, I'm not quite there with it, but it's really good. And then he fights Bam Bam Bigelow in a really great finals match. Three different finishes, becomes the first King of the Ring on pay-per-view. I just, I love this as a truly iconic performance from the Hitman. Yeah, so my note was this night proved that Brett was easily one of the best ever. Um, three completely different matches. Yeah. The Razor match, he uses speed to beat him. Um, 
ending was a top rope uh, reverse suplex. Great match. I like the Mr. Perfect match a lot. Like like you said, I don't know if it's better than the the SummerSlam one, but it's still really good. The only thing I don't like about this match, and I know they use it a lot in the 90s, but I am never a fan of a small package as the the finish. So right. I didn't love that. I think that takes a little bit away from it. So that probably knocks a point off of it for me just because that's the finish. Um, I thought the Bam Bam match was good, but you can clearly tell Brett is exhausted at this point in the night. Um, I actually did watch these three on Sunday, and he is by this time, and as he should be, I mean, wrestling Razor and Mr. Perfect by themselves on any given night is a task of itself, and then having to wrestle them and then Bam Bam, who got the bye uh, because of an injury, so... Yeah, the, the Bam Bam match to me is definitely not the best, which that's fine. I mean, Brett had already wrestled so much by that point, so I get it. But yeah, just a special night for Brett. We got an awesome figure of this in 2018. Ringside Collectibles gave us the exclusive Brett the Hitman heart with the, the robe, the crown, and everything. Yeah, this is absolutely incredible. I, I love this figure. I have this figure. Um, I actually bought two of these and like an idiot sold the other one on eBay for like 40 bucks. Like what the hell was I thinking? It's a pricey figure nowadays. Yeah. It's really expensive now and it's, it's phenomenal. I would love to get this one signed. It's just, it's a really cool look again with the goddamn hair though. <laughs> Looking back, how goofy is it that they actually got Brett to get in the full King get up? Yeah. Extremely weird. D- definitely not something you would picture as him uh, ever doing again, but I mean, it's still cool. Definitely a moment, as Sheena would say. And we kicked off uh, the start of a really great uh, mid-90s rivalry with Jerry the King Lawler coming out and attacking Brett during his uh, his coronation ceremony. So I I am definitely of the belief that Lawler has a place in wrestling history uh, on top of his announcing. I just was not a fan of his ring-wise, so... I didn't love this. I just kind of thought it was stupid. Like, Brett is already above him at this point for me. So, I don't know. Wasn't a huge fan of that. Yeah, I, I would have loved it. Like, Brett and Jerry Lawler doing some, like, side stuff down in USWA in Memphis. But, like you said, Jerry Lawler's style and hats off to him. An all-time great, right? You can make an argument that Jerry Lawler should actually be in, like, the top 10 mm-hmm. professional wrestlers of all time. Um, but his it was so old school and just so... Southern wrestling heel shtick that it didn't really belong on pay-per-view. And, you know, he did get a, end up getting a handful of pay-per-view matches against Brett. I will say, I think Jerry Lawler is probably one of the 10 most influential people in wrestling. I think that's a better way to describe him just yeah, for everything definitely. that he did on the Memphis wrestling scene and everything. And I mean, dude, he brought in some huge people like him wrestling Andy Kaufman and stuff like that was definitely huge back then. Um, so he definitely has his place in wrestling history. Just not my favorite personal wrestler, but definitely a huge part of wrestling history. And he's right there at SummerSlam 93. So Brett gives us a two for one special on this night. Fights Doink. Um, ironically enough, you know, he fought Razor and Razor's last match as a heel at King of the Ring. This is Doink's last match as a heel on pay-per-view here at SummerSlam 93 beats Doink and then uh, Jerry Lawler and fake the injury to get out of it. And he fights Jerry Lawler second. I think the match with Doink is really, really good. This is the original incarnation of Doink. Uh, Matt Bourne, amazing wrestler from the uh, Pacific Northwest, actually wrestles on WrestleMania 1 against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat as Danger Matt Bourne. Um, 
but he was the, you know, the heel doink and just a really, really awesome influential character when he first came in. I think this match is, uh, I think the doink match is pretty good, man. The doink match is, it is a really good match. The Jerry Lawler match is not good. Like, let's just call it for what it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's just, good. It's it's an angle more than a match. Yeah, there, there's nothing about it that I would consider uh, a wrestling match as far as that's concerned. But yeah, the Doink match was fun to watch. I enjoyed Doink. I mean, definitely at his place. I I hated clowns as a kid, so it was easy to hate him <laughs> as a heel. And it was really cool how they rolled Doink out. You know, would just like you'd kind of see him strolling through the background on Monday Night Raw and stuff like that. And it's like, what the fuck is this? This is a couple years after it uh, was a, a real phenomenon oh, as a as a television miniseries. And yeah, super creepy and dark. Uh, that early incarnation of Doink. Yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it was really well done. Looking back on it. There's an alternate universe where on this night, instead of wrestling a double feature against Doink and Jerry Lawler, that Brett is main eventing and getting a passing the torch moment, winning the world championship from Hulk Hogan. Supposedly that is what was originally sketched out when Hulk got the belt from Yokozuna at WrestleMania nine. Um, what do you think a Brett Hulk match looks like at, uh, at SummerSlam 93, Jordan? Uh, Hogan gets his shit in, obviously. Um, It'd have to be some schmoz finish for Hogan to agree to to lose that match clean. Yeah, so, like you mentioned, some sort of small package, something like that. Yeah, he's definitely not just taking a, a clean loss, like tapping out in the sharpshooter. He definitely ain't doing that. So I'm seeing I'm seeing either a small package or maybe Holt goes for like a a, a back suplex and Brett rolls over to a crossbody and you know Hulk kicks out at fucking three point zero one. I could see a run into where it distracts Hulk and then Brett gets like a roll up or something to win the match and I would be like, well, you couldn't beat me without someone running in. So it would be <laughs> something along those lines, knowing Hogan. Yeah, for sure. Let's go to Survivor Series, man. So this is the the match is kind of forgettable. But it's still pretty historically significant. Um, this is Bret Hart going up against uh, HBK and the Knights. Now, you might be wondering, why the fuck did HBK have Knights? He didn't. This was originally supposed to be Jerry Lawler. But the uh, the King uh, got in a little bit of trouble for, you know, possibly robbing the cradle, depending on how much you believe the accusations did. Basically, he was, uh, you know, I think it was a 15-year-old he was accused of having relations with and had a bit of a legal situation back here in Tennessee. And luckily, Shawn Michaels was there to uh, to come to the rescue with the uh, the Knights there. Um, they fought the Hart family. It was Brett, Owen, and their brothers. Really unique look. Brett's rocking the singlet, man. What do you what do you think of Brett in the singlet with no uh, no long tights? Well, that sure is something. Kind of kind of describes this whole match for me. Just a clusterfuck of a match. Like I I, I would. Probably quote like uh, Seth's famous quote. I'd close my blinds if this match was on in my front yard. <laughs> yeah, the the nights for so you, obviously you got Shawn Michaels, who's an all timer of a uh, a wrestler. I think it was Bruce and Keith were the two Hart brothers. There's a reason that this was the only ever match they had in WWF. But uh, Shawn's nights were, I think, I forget what the fourth one was. It was a no name, but then it was Greg Valentine and Barry Horowitz, which I don't think either one of those guys are setting the world on fire, right? Uh, definitely not. Yeah, this is this is not a great match at all. So, yeah, there, there's nothing about this that I would never tell anybody. Hey, man, be sure to go back and watch this because you're really going to see a real treat of a match here. So, yeah, the only thing this is significant for is it did uh, kind of light the fuse on one of the great rivalries in wrestling history when 
Brett accidentally gets Owen eliminated. Owen ends up being the only Hart brother eliminated from the match. And this kind of plants the seeds for Brett and Owen's absolute epic rivalry. Yeah, absolutely fantastic to set this up. That's that's about the only thing you can say about this match, honestly. Uh, talking figures, a lot of people really want to get a figure of this because it's a unique look for Brett. For me, dude, I only would want this if we got all the Hart brothers. And obviously we know that yeah, for happening. Owen, that's basically impossible. And for Bruce and Keith, like it's next to never happening. So to, I, I don't want this as a standalone. To me, it only works if you get the whole set. What, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't want this figure unless it's with everybody or else the figure just looks weird on its own. Like we need we need everybody in it. So, um, yeah, not a fan. Oh, the f- it was an all time swerve upgrade for me um, last year, 2022, when they announced the Survivor Series lineup for Elite's. Brett was in it. It was originally rumored it was going to be Survivor Series 93, Brett. When they switched from it to Survivor Series 96, that was just like, you know, I was H-A-R-D hard for that one. The fourth night, by the way, was Jeff Gaylord. So I have to ask you, uh, just based on principle, what's your favorite Jeff Gaylord match? (laughs) I don't know, dude. I don't know. I'm not not real familiar with the Gaylord, dude. (laughs) Yeah, I figured you'd say that. Let's get to one of the most important nights of Bret Hart's career. Gotta tell you, I cannot believe what I just saw, Owen. Please tell me why. Why this despicable act? Why, I don't, what? Why, what? I don't understand. You wanna know why? Bret Hart, you're nothing but a selfish person. I went in there on a tag team match for the biggest match of my life. It was a dream come true. I thought I had the best partner in the world. My own brother. But you're too selfish, like I've said all along. Your ego is too big. You only worry about yourself, Brett. Rowan, you don't Owen, care about me. Unbelievable in front of your entire family. I your don't family care about you. anybody. I was concerned about myself and my whole family. The biggest opportunity in my life. I had a chance, Brett. And you stripped it away from me. You took it away from me, Brett. Because you're too selfish. All you had to do was just tag me. My hand was there. Just tag me. I knew your leg was bad. I was aware of that. Just tag me. But you're too selfish. You just want to put your sharpshooter on. I could have won the match. I don't need you with a bad leg doing a break. You're too damn selfish. And that's why you're sitting there with a bad leg. And that's why I kicked your leg out of your leg. Absolutely <laughs> legendary line. That's why I kicked your leg out of your leg, dude. Owen Owen had dude, he was Starcross, man. Obviously he botched that line, even though it ended up being so famous. And then, you know, he gets the big win at our next pay-per-view, and he's got like a freaking boogie hanging out of his nose as he's celebrating. <laughs> like But um We'll start off with the tag team match, man. I'll tell you, dude, as a kid, I remember buying this paper, or, you know, get my parents to buy this pay-per-view, even though even as, uh, you know, as a nine year old, dude, I should have fucking seen the heel turn come from a mile away. I'll tell you, dude, seeing Brett back in the tag team division and teaming up with Owen, I was capital M fucking marking out thinking they were going to beat the Quebecers and be like this unstoppable tag team. Yeah, it. It definitely had the the setup of being just absolutely fantastic and a great run, but like you said, dude, the Owen Hart promo at the end of this just <laughs> I mean, me and you recite this numerous times a year. Too damn selfish. You're too damn selfish. All you have to do is line, tag me. And in. Sheena, yeah, me and Sheena use it around the house, dude. <laughs> you know why you didn't clean that toilet? Because you're too damn selfish. <laughs> 
Oh, God. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Kicked your leg out of your leg. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, man. Um, and, and a good match, too, dude. You know, Brett had the, had the knee injury. He's selling it the whole time. It's a really, really fun tag match um, all the way through. I mean, dude, the Mounties don't get enough credit for me. Like, I, I yes, love them. I, I thought they were great together, honestly. I, I feel like that's probably, for me, one of the most underrated tag teams ever. Like, they get no yeah, Jacques credit. Yeah, Jacques Rougeau was awesome. And, you know, he was he was Pierre in, in the Quebecers. Then he goes on to be Jean-Pierre Lafitte, who was really, really cool for the short run he had in WWE. And, dude, he's still a big-time wrestler in the NDC now as PCO. Yeah, it's insane. Like, that, that was 30 years ago, dude. Like, we're, we're talking about something that was 30 years ago, and he's still wrestling to this day. He's an absolute brick shit house, by the way. Like, good God. That's a scary dude. I wouldn't want to run into that dude in a back alley. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, I just I feel like they don't get enough credit for what they did. This is a really good match. I mean, even before the Owen shit happens, like, this match is really good. And... I, I feel like the ending adds to it too, just the fact that he just collapses rather than tagging yes. Owen. I, I feel like that adds it, it already built in the storyline for him and Owen. Like he has something to call back on. This this was so well booked at the time and yeah, I, I loved it. So what what do you think, man? Was Brett too selfish? Oh, hundred percent. All he had to do was tag him out and go lay on the outside, but He's just too damn selfish, man. He just he he's the only heart that he cares about is himself. <laughs> See, dude, I disagree, man. Obviously, I'm a Brett apologist, but I feel like Brett knew that every time Owen had you know a chance to shine at the at the biggest moment, he choked it away, dude. Aside <laughs> from the opening match of of WrestleMania 10, which we're gonna get to next, when did Owen not choke it away when he had a big opportunity? Yeah, man, Owen definitely had his shortcomings and. Yeah, not, no, don't. No, okay. no, not gonna do it. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so before before we get to the rumble, let's talk about the gear, dude. Brett's rocking all black gear with the the splatter paint on it, dude. It's never been done in figure form, man. I feel like this is one of Brett's biggest nights of his career, and to me, this is my all time favorite gear that he wore. Why the fuck have we not gotten this as our action figure yet? Because Mattel's too damn selfish. That's why. Too damn selfish. <laughs> all right, let's go to the rumble. Brett comes out at number 27, limping out, huge baby face pop, man. Like the crowd is going absolutely berserk. Um, and he ends up tying with Lex fucking Luger. Now, shout out to Lex Luger, man. They, ex- you know, he's never been known for his technical acumen, but they executed the finish of this absolutely perfect, man. It, it I mean, to this day, you still can't tell who hit the who hit the ground first. You could even say it was ex- excellently executed. Easy for you to say. Yeah, not really, apparently. Apparently, <laughs> four bush lights is my my number to, to call it. Guess we're done for the night. I finished up that smoothie that we talked so much about. I'm, I'm doing a Corona in line uh, right now. One thing with me about Coronas, dude, as much as I love Miller Lite, I think Corona is my most slammable beer. I feel like every anytime I pop the top on one of these, I'm drinking it in like five sips, dude. So fucking, we'll, we'll see how we progress through the uh, the mid-90s here. Not well. I'm, I got a feeling it's not well. But what would uh, what's kind of your take on the the finish of the '94 Rumble? I mean, cool at the time. I, I'm never a fan of a tie. Obviously, I just I, I don't agree with it. But I mean, for this particular Royal Rumble, I understand why they did it. Um, they, I think they were just, I think they were hesitant to push Lex. But 
I, I just I think it was like a it was like a straight up like live focus group, man. Like they could see who got the bigger pop and you know, poor Lex, dude. It's not I, I really feel like they set him up to look like a chump because it's not even close, man. Once they got him when you know, when they're the refs are taking turns holding up arms, it's a way bigger pop for Brett. And and Lex's defense, you know, the crowd already got to see Brett be the sympathetic baby face getting sent out on a stretcher. So they kind of set up Lex to be a fucking failure in that moment. I feel like I, I, a lot of the stuff WWF did to Lex Luger set him up for failure just the way he was booked. And I mean, the dude looks like a million dollars. Like I, I just, and his work was good enough, man. He was, he wasn't great, but he was good enough in the ring. Yeah. It was passable. You know, I mean, that's what you have to say about a lot of guys in the nineties. Their work was passable for him to, to be a champion. It's just, I don't know, man. It's, there's a lot of stuff and rumors that go around about Lex about the nineties and all that stuff. And obviously he did a lot of shitty stuff, but I don't know. I just, I, I feel like he was set up to fail a lot of times. Well, they made him look like a straight up idiot when at SummerSlam 93, he beats Yogozuna by DQ, but goes on to celebrate. Like he won the championship. You get the <sighs> balloons dropping and you know, all the, all the other baby faces coming up to celebrate with him. It's like, what the hell dude? Yeah. His moment is winning DQ against Yokozuna and they treated it like he just fucking won the world championship. Pretty fucking sad. Like, like I said, the other reason it doesn't age as well is because nowadays, like there wouldn't even be any question. You would just do a triple threat match, right? Like Brett, Lex and Yoko in a, in a triangle match. But they did this super convoluted setup where it was a coin toss to see who got to wrestle Yokozuna first and whoever lost the coin toss would fight another opponent. You know, Brett would be facing Owen, which happened, or Lex would be fighting Ludwig Borga. Like it was just, uh, it was just the most like complicated setup you could possibly have. Yeah, and it didn't, like you said, it didn't need to be. Could have easily done a triple threat match, and it would have been great. But yeah, still a great night for Brett. One of the, uh, you know, probably one of the most, you know, four or five most important nights of his career. Um, before we get to the next pay-per-view. So uh, before we get to, you know, he fought two matches on this one. We'll first start with, with the match against Owen Hart. Now this is widely regarded as um, the best opening match of WrestleMania of all time. And some people would describe it as the best opening match of any pay-per-view, just a straight up technical masterpiece he has against Owen to, uh, to kick off WrestleMania 10. This is the greatest opening match of WrestleMania history. It's not even, I don't even think it's debatable, honestly. I mean, Brett and Owen, obviously, they had a ton of rapport, and um, yeah, it's just a phenomenal match, and I I love this match. I mean, I I don't really think we need to go on about this too long because just how good it is, but... Just go watch it. Yeah, exactly. We we don't we don't need to describe it for you guys. We don't need to be Vince McMahon and Savage calling the match. Like, just just <laughs> go up, go turn it on and watch it. It's a great match. Yeah, and with the uh, and, and you know Owen gets the win with the the what's that called the vic- the victory roll right? He stops the victory roll, gets the pin, and it just sets up some great storylines for the next few months. Um, and none of it would have been possible without the main event. WrestleMania 10 stands to be one of the greatest challenges of my entire career. Because I was robbed of the World Wrestling Federation title one year from WrestleMania. I got what it takes to get past Yokozuna. I'm going to fight fire with fire. You are just another opponent, and I will wipe you up. You're looking at the World Wrestling Federation champion. All right, here we go. Our final match, the hitman Brad Hart, and of course, Yokozuna. Bret Hart, you're going to have to... 
deal with the fact that it's no longer a matter of you trying to win the title. It's a matter of you trying to keep yourself in one piece. He's going to chew you up and spit you out, Hart, and your career may be over at the biggest WrestleMania of all time. I can't wait to see it happen. talk for a minute dude <laughs> dude this match itself is not like anything groundbreaking obviously we don't need to dwell on it too much but piper added something being the guest ref yes, um, dude, yes. I, I felt like that dude, act- also burt reynolds is the ring announcer dude burt reynolds actually did a fucking bang up job as the ring announcer on this burt one. reynolds aka turd ferguson yes he he definitely added something to this but yeah, dude, Piper added a lot to this, and I like the finish. I know a lot of people don't. Yes. I just think the finish is cool, because that was the problem with Yokozuna, dude. It wasn't believable that a lot of people could beat him. Like He was a beast, dude. Yeah, dude. He was a perfectly booked monster. He moved well in the ring. Like it, It's not like he was just a stationary big dude. Like He could move, and it just wasn't believable for a lot of the smaller guys to beat him. So I loved the way they finished this match. Yeah, I we actually talked about it in the last pod. Coincidentally enough, um, my son Brett, five years old, I had him watching the. He wanted to watch the Sean and Razor ladder match because he'd heard me talking about it, and he kept WrestleMania Tim playing. And I was in our our office, you know, slash podcast studio slash workout room here in our house, um, but he's still watching Mania in the living room. And at the end of the Brett and Yoko match, I hear this audible, yes, like when Brett got the three count. And, dude, I, I've said it before, man. Whatever the kids react to, that really tells you what's over and what's not in pro wrestling. And the fact that, you know, with with no, you know, preconceived notions on what that match was going to be, you got an audible yell out of him when Brett got the three count. just tells you how, what, what a great little underdog story it was in this little 10-minute match. Um, you know, they finally gave Brett the moment that he deserved being, you know, standing tall at the end of WrestleMania. Obviously that's really like the biggest honor you can give a wrestler that shows, you know, how much faith they have in you. If you're the guy that's, that's there holding up the belt when the, you know, the little trademark copyright logo thing comes up on the screen. Um, and just a fun match, man. Like I said, you nailed it, dude. Roddy Piper being there added a lot. Burt Reynolds did a good job as the guest ring announcer. I just, I, I fucking love WrestleMania 10, dude. It's probably my favorite wrestling show of all time. Um, and, and it's just a perfect way to end it. Yeah. It's like you said, it just, it had so many high moments on WrestleMania 10. It's, it, it's definitely a show you want to go back and watch again and again. And it, it starts phenomenally and it ends phenomenally. Like they just, yeah, they, they killed it, man. The execution was there on this one. Yeah, go back and watch it, man. It's just a fun show. You got Brett Nolan with his technical masterpiece. 
Um, Crush and Macho Man have a fun Falls Count Anywhere match. The the mixed tag between Bam Bam and Luna Vachon against Dink and Doink is fun. Even goddamn Men on a Mission against Quebecers is a fun match. Yeah, and then obviously we'll we'll get the Creme de la Creme Razor and Sean in the ladder match. Yes. I mean, dude, that between that and the Owen match, the Owen and Brett match, I just it's like wrestling porn almost. Like Sean, <laughs> yes, Sean and Razor is. I mean, if if you want to watch like a good ladder match, like you want to like see what a ladder match should look like, watch that match. Like that to me is the standard of what a ladder match should look like. Like, yeah, it was great. There was no, I mean, there were some real, there were some high spots in it, but it was nothing like insane. It was just, it looked exactly like what a if 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 you boil down what a ladder match is, right? You need you can use a ladder as a weapon, and you need to be the first guy to climb it and get to the belt. It was the best example of that. A lot of ladder matches nowadays have a lot of shit that if you really think about it hard, it's like, why the fuck would you even try to do that? If you're taking all the time to set up this convoluted spot, you could have just put the ladder in the middle of the ring and climbed up and got the belt. That is the the best way to describe it is the ladder was part of this match. It wasn't the match, though. Like, now the ladder is the match. Like, when yeah. they do ladder matches now, everything has to be off of a ladder or onto a ladder. Like... The ladder definitely had its moment in this match, but it wasn't like the the star attraction of this match. Like them wrestling was the star attraction of this match. Definitely. One one unique thing for gear on this one, um, Brett was rocking like a long trench coat if you go in this match. He didn't he came out for the main event just in his gear, no glasses, no nothing. But the opening match, he comes out with this he this was the only event he had it in. It was this leather jacket that goes down to his freaking knees like like Morpheus from the Matrix. Yeah, I'm not a gigantic fan of this look. Like, this is <laughs> not really doing it for me, to be completely honest. So I just don't know why, you know, like I said, it was like maybe he thought since The Undertaker missed a show, he needed to give him a little nod or something. I don't know. Yeah, they're like, how do you feel about wearing The Undertaker's trench coat and hat? He's like, well, I don't feel well about wearing any hat, but I'll wear his trench coat. All right, going on to uh, King of the Ring 94. This is Brett's first title defense on pay-per-view of the second ring. He's actually facing the Intercontinental Champ Diesel, which is pretty um, pretty ironic because remember his his first defense on his first title reign was also against the IC Champ, which was Shawn Michaels at the time. Uh, this match, you know, it kind of is what it is. Brett's got some really nice gear. It was actually the inspiration for the first Bret Hart Ultimate Edition figure back in Series Two of the Ultimates. Um, not a whole lot to say though. This was kind of just random, you know baby face undersized guy against heavyweight match. The big thing on this one was that the Jim, the anvil turned heel after this match when he didn't say Brett from being beat down against uh HBK and diesel. Yeah. There there's one thing I want to say about this match is, and it still amazes me to this day is how much chemistry Brett had with almost everybody he worked with. Like, I mean, diesel is not exactly like an agile heavyweight. Like he, he has his moves and stuff and he does what he does, but dude, Brett can make anybody look good. Like this isn't a great match by any means. And the, the purpose of it was basically for Anvil to turn heel, which I was fine with, but yeah, I mean, this is definitely not one I'm going to recommend that you go out of your way to watch. But yeah, they'll, they'll have a better one um, down the road about a year and a half from this one. But uh, is that another bush light? Another bush light. Hell yeah. But, um, but yeah, Brett definitely had a knack for bringing out the best in his opponents. All right, moving to SummerSlam 94. This is another classic. This is one that's in my uh, my Magnificent Seven. 
it was it wasn't the main event of the night because obviously we had to have the Undertaker versus the Underfaker going on last. But uh, in the co-main event, he defends his world championship against the newly crowned King of the Ring, Owen Hart, in a steel cage match. Um, to me, this is the best cage match ever. It's in the classic big blue cage, which I love. And the other thing I like about this is that they really both wrestlers had a sense of urgency that at every possible chance they attempted to escape the ring. Like a lot of times you would see it where, you know, guys wouldn't even really try to win the match until the last, you know, until 12, 13 minutes had gone by. But these guys from the opening bell were going to try to climb over. And it just led, like I said, it just lent a sense of urgency to the match and has a lot of really awesome spots. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a ton to add to it. The The match is just, it's, it's phenomenal. Like you said, it's, it's definitely up there for best cage matches ever. Crowd is completely hot for this match. Um, the ending of it with Owen hanging upside down from the cage as Brett climbs out is just such a cool image. And yes, I mean, dude, th- that's the thing is I feel like they focus so much more on the end image in the nineties. Like just, just the end of this match, like just seeing Owen dangling by his legs from the cage and then watching Brett hit the floor. It's just such a cool image. And I feel like they lose a lot of that now. Um, yeah, dude, that's a very good point. I feel like I feel like a lot of these big matches from like the early to mid 90s, even into the Attitude Era, at least the early portions of it, I feel like I can remember like move for move the finishes to these matches. Whereas like if you ask me the, the specific finishes to pay-per-views from a year ago, like I'm totally lost. Dude, that's because they wanted you to remember like how these ended. And when your favorite person wins the title, they want you to like recall how the last couple minutes went and what the last image of that match was. I just I feel like they've gotten so much away from this. And it's it's just such an easy thing to do, I feel like. And I, I just don't think they do it as much as they should anymore. Yeah, definitely. I think Pat Patterson is missed, you know. Brett's talked about Pat Patterson was kind of his booker, like his agent that booked the specific matches and was just really, really good at crafting the specific finishes to these matches. And, um, you know, I know Tyson Kidd does a good job from everything you hear backstage now, but they're definitely missing some of the truly iconic finishes nowadays. I feel like the problem, too, is everything is compared to the early 90s and late 90s Attitude Era. And there's no way you can ever duplicate from 90 to 99 ever again. Like, for sure. I feel like everybody's trying to catch that lightning in a bottle again. And it's just impossible to. The roster was just so stacked at certain points during the 90s. And then obviously you have the Attitude Era where it's just com- a completely stacked roster. They just had so many more like huge names at that time that they could use all the time. I mean, you look and at just the emotional connection, dude. Like, I feel like. I mean, outside of like Roman, Cody, like Sami Zayn, and maybe Seth, like who in WWE does the crowd really get up for nowadays? It's because they build nobody up, dude. They, they no, the crowd doesn't have a reason to connect with you now. Like in the '90s, that was like their focal point. Like they did superstars, they did um, interviews and stuff. Like you got, to, it felt like you got to know the wrestler back then. Yeah, I feel like they're so far away from that now. Like they don't care if you know who uh, Matt Riddle is or whoever, Randy Orton, whoever you want to say. I just, I were so far from that now and you have your four main guys and that's all you got. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Um, let's go to a truly polarizing match in, uh, 
in Brett's history. Survivor Series 1994. Really, really fun event. But Brett is defending the world championship against a newly heel, new gimmick as like the psychotic, like dementia version of Bob Backlund. They're in, they're in a submission match where, um, you know, you can also have your second throw in the towel. And uh, Bob Backlund's second was Owen Hart, and Brett had the Bulldog. Um, it's a quick synopsis. Basically, the match ends with, uh, you know, Bob Backlund has gotten uh, Brett locked in his deadly cross-faced chicken wing finisher. Brett's not submitting, but um, due to some outside-the-ring hijinks, the British Bulldog gets straight up fucking knocked out. Like, sells, a, <laughs> sells running to the steps like nobody ever has in the history of the biz. And, uh, and Brett convinces, or excuse me, Owen convinces Brett's, uh, Brett and Owen's mom, Martha, to throw in the towel for Brett to give Bob Backlund the, uh, the championship, man. Um, I'll, I'll take your thoughts on this one first, Jordan, for it, before I offer up mine. So, first of all, I remember watching this live as a kid. I hated Bob Backlund at this time. I, there's just, there was nothing appealing about him whatsoever. He, he was just a hateable, hateable heel. He did one of the most worthless finishers of all time for me. I just, I, I, I don't get it. I mean, I can suspend disbelief, but whatever. I don't like this match at all, personally. I just, I feel like throwing in the towel is such a gutless way to end a match. Brett was in the chicken wing for ten minutes. That should tell you how worthless that hold is. Um, I don't know, man, and. When this night started, I thought there was zero chance Bob Backlund was winning this match. So him taking the title off Brett, to me, diminished the title a bit because I don't feel like Bob Backlund was big enough to have the title at this point. I know his history and how big he is um, in wrestling history, but I don't know, dude. 1995. I mean, we're 20 years past that, though, by the time this match takes place. Yeah, dude, late 1994. I'm I'm not looking at Bob Backlund as a contender for anything, let alone the world title. So I hate this match. i just not a fan at all of this one. I will say, as a kid, I fucking hated it. As a young adult, I fucking hated it. As I've gotten a little bit older, it's grown on me. I feel like with some tweaks, it could have been a lot better. I don't think Brett should have been. I think the crossface chicken wing should have lasted like three or four minutes, man. Um, I think if he's in that hold for three or four minutes and they tell the same story with with Martha throwing the the towel in, because I do think that was a cool a cool finish, right? With Owen like you know crying and convincing his mom to throw the belt in, like that was cool, but. The execution of it, like the 10 minutes, first off, it made Bob Beckman like a chump because it's like, dude, you got this guy in your finish for 10 minutes and he's not passing out or, you know, submitting. And then it also made Brett look weak where like, dude, how are you in this hold for 10 minutes? You can't figure out a way out of it. You know what I mean? Like, I th- I feel like it was one of those finishes that made both guys look weaker just in the execution of it. But I've grown to like it a little bit. I do think it was a pretty good story. And Bob Beckman did have a cool character, but it has not aged well at all, mostly because it was less than a week after this match that Diesel straight up squashes Bob Backlund in less than 10 seconds to win the championship. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it too is, so we're supposed to believe that Bret Hart, who is this technical wrestler, can't find a way out of this broke-ass modified sleeper hold. Like, come on, man. Like, I can suspend disbelief, but dude, them laying there for basically 10 minutes just kind of killed this match for me. 
Yeah, they should have just they should have tightened it up a little bit, and I think it would have been passable. But yeah, weird story. We'll say SummerSlam night or excuse me, Survivor Series '94 all time event T-shirt. I'm really hoping one oh. of the uh, various bootleggers will remake that shirt, dude. Because I've come close to pulling the trigger on it a few times on eBay, and I just I can't go above like 300 bucks for a wrestling T-shirt. That's like my cap, and that seems that the price of getting in the game on that shirt seems to be closer about 550 or so. To me, getting the chalk line shorts is probably as close as I'll ever get to getting that shirt. Um, the chalk line shorts, I still like them a lot. I mean, they hold a special place in my collection oh, for yeah. me because, I mean, at least I have something from that event, even though it's not from the actual event. So, so Sheena, you know, Sheena has helped me out on the search for that. A person reached out, dude. How tantalizing is this? You can see the guy. He's sitting. It's a, you know, it's a, a kid, man, a, a Hispanic kid sitting in the front row wearing that shirt. And he actually reached out to Sheena because Sheena had done a couple posts, like, you know, seeing if anybody had that shirt for sale. And uh, he told her he still has his shirt from that event, dude. And like, I've gotten Sheena to reach out to him a couple times over the years saying like, dude, how much do you want? Because like, It'd be awesome having that shirt anyways, but actually having that shirt and knowing it's one that's like on camera the entire time would just be crazy. That kid ain't ever selling or that guy ain't ever selling that shirt. Just so you know. Yeah, I know. We've, I got, I think I got Sheena to offer up to like four fifty, and he still wouldn't budge off of it, man. So may need to reach back out. It's been a while since I, I hadn't really thought about that till just now. Yeah. Times right, are tough go. now. <laughs> True. Let's go to uh, Royal Rumble 1995. So this is an interesting event. It's Diesel's first defense of the world championship, and he's going up against Bret Hart. And the match ends in a no contest. It's basically just the schmoz of all schmozzes. Um, Bret gets Diesel in the sharpshooter, and you have Owen Hart and a few other heels come in and interfere. Um and fuck up the match. I, I can't remember. It was either a ref bump and nobody saw it or another ref came out and restarted the match, but the match keeps going. Diesel ends up hitting Brett with the, the uh, jackknife and then Shawn Michaels and a few other heels come out and start working over Diesel. And eventually the ref's just like, fuck it. And they ring the bell and end the match. Um, and Kevin Nash has been on record as saying that he thought that this match and this finish basically killed the momentum for his run and basically put like a fucking low ceiling on the entire reign of uh, of Diesel, man. What, what What's your thoughts on on the Royal Rumble 95 schmoz of uh, the Hitman versus Big Daddy Cool? I'm not going to lie to you. There's going to be a, a good stretch here of matches of Bretts that I don't really enjoy. Um, the ending of this match, still to this day, I don't like. It's just, I get it from a booking standpoint, but it definitely killed Diesel's run. Like, we needed a, a definitive finish here, and... I don't know, man. I just I don't like when matches end in a no contest. I I get the point of it. It's just it's not for me at all. There was just no reason to put Brett with Diesel, dude. Brett still should have been focused on Owen. Mm-hmm. I, I I agree, man. I think they did a big disservice to Kevin Nash because <coughs> excuse me, Kevin Nash is awesome, dude. Like he's I mean, obviously he's a little bit limited being a you know a big man, but I think he's super charismatic and a pretty good worker for his size. Um, and yeah, sadly, I got to agree, man. They kind of cut the legs out from underneath him with uh, with the way they did him on his first pay-per-view as champ. It's sad, man. It, it really did screw Diesel over so bad. But yeah, just not a fan of this one at all. Ooh. All right. I just popped the, t- the top the on tip. a sequence. <laughs> not Didn't pop the tip. That'd be painful. <laughs> I popped the top on a uh, sequence sour, dude. So this is, uh, this is one of our staples in uh, VA, man. But... You know, unfortunately, out here in Oakland, Tennessee, uh, 
believe it or not, we don't have access to a total wine or anything like that. I, I grabbed a six pack of these when I went down to Texas for work a couple months ago. Um, and still working on those. So yeah, we're, uh, we're getting deeper and deeper into the buzz as we get deeper and deeper into <laughs> Brett's, uh, pay-per-view career. That's exactly right, what we're go. looking for. <laughs> let's go to WrestleMania 11, the I quit match against Bob Backlund. Now I was, because I love our listeners and I love the Foley fam. I did not pull any audio drops from this match because we talked about at WrestleMania 10, Roddy Piper, adding so much um, to that match being the guest ref. Everything he added in WrestleMania 10, he took away from the match at WrestleMania 11 times infinity. I hate this match. This is definitely, if this isn't Brett's worst match, it's it's definitely in the top three. I mean, the only note I had for this match is there's literally nothing about this match that I even remotely enjoy. So, yeah, don't put this on your Bret Hart watch list. It would have been just a standard bad match if it would have been just a ref in there. But Piper just takes it to a the depths of fucking hell by every 30 seconds. Do you quit? What do you say? What do you say? <laughs> like, I don't know why they thought it was a good idea to give the fucking referee a microphone. Yeah, it, it definitely takes away from the match. And God, dude, I I remember watching this match live and just thinking, what the hell are they thinking? Like, wh- what was the purpose of even having, I mean, Piper even being in there was stupid, honestly. It's just, I don't think we need, I mean, to, you could, we don't need to go on it, about it, this match. It's, in it's the bad. match's defense, in the match's defense, you could say, what the hell were they thinking about all of WrestleMania 11? I mean, it takes place, think about this, dude. WrestleMania 11 took place in Hartford, Connecticut at the convention center, which was attached to a shopping mall. You know, you've heard the grandest stage of them all. This was at the grandest stage of the mall. It was attached to the mall in fucking Hartford, Connecticut. Main event is Lawrence Taylor versus Bam Bam Bigelow. Um, Some of the other matches on the show is the Allied Powers, Lex Luger and Davey Boy Smith against the the Blue Brothers. Um, This is just a piss poor card, man. I I think we're going to do a total WrestleMania countdown sometime in the future on Pod Warriors. This one's definitely in the mix to be the worst of all time. Oh, 100%. This this entire show is garbage. Like, you could just throw this one away and no one would notice. Let's go to the next pay-per-view, the debut of the In Your House concept. This was really revolutionary at the time. This is the first time that WWE had uh, had dipped its toes into the monthly pay-per-view game. Basically, In Your House started off as a really cool concept where it was cheaper pay-per-views that happened in between the big shows. They were only 20 bucks and they were two hours long. Um, I love the In Your House concept, man. It made for a ton of just really fun watches. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. They, they were really well done. The only thing that I'm going to say I have a little bit of beef with in your house pay-per-views is a lot of times there was throwaway match, a lot of throwaway matches on this, a lot oh, yeah. of one-offs and stuff like that. Very cool concept, but a lot of times it failed to deliver. I love the set design too, man. Yeah. Like if, if the next crowdfund, I, I have zero uh, hopes that that's what it is, but if the next crowdfund was a, like an in-your-house stage design, name your fucking price, Mattel, and I'm paying it. Yeah, 100%. It it would be awesome. It's just these left a lot to be desired is basically how I'll word it. 
But going back to uh, Brett being the first, you know, he had the first Iron Man match, first ladder match. He was the first entry in the first Royal Rumble. He was there at Undertaker's debut. He's in the first match at In Your House, and he's wrestling Hakushi. Uh, he ends up doing a, another double feature, basically the same gimmick they ran at SummerSlam 93. They do at the first In Your House pay-per-view where he wrestles Hakushi and Jerry Lawler. The Jerry Lawler match is whatever, but the match with Hakushi is kind of like a, a, a hidden gem as far as WWE pay-per-view goes. Yeah, um, Hakushi, he definitely had some interesting matches and some good matches, and this is this is one of them. It was it was fun to watch. Uh, yeah, the Lawler one is completely worthless. We don't even need to discuss that one. Do you think that WWE missed the boat on Hakushi? Because I feel like he was really, really awesome for what he was back there in the early 90s and a little bit ahead of his time. Dude, he had an awesome look. His moveset was good. I There was a lot of things to like about him. I just... I feel like they didn't know what to do with him, you know? I mean, and I, I I still feel like that was a lot of their problems in the mid-90s. They really didn't know what to do with the middle of the card guys. Like, they knew what to do with the top guys and how to book them, but I feel like they failed in a lot of the mid-card guys on what they were doing with them. Yeah, it seemed like if you weren't at the tippy-top of the card, you were just kind of cannon fodder for the bigger stars. But yeah, I'm with you, man. Hakushi was, was freaking awesome. I'm hoping somehow he gets on some sort of legends deal and we get some figures of him, dude. Because there, oh, yeah. there's never been any like mainstream Hakushi figures. I know that he's a legend in Japan and he's had a few. He's basically like the equivalent of the Undertaker over there, and he's had some figures in Japan. But we are greatly missing out on any North American Hakushi figures. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go to King of the Ring '95. This is the only gimmick match of this, to my knowledge, the Kiss My Foot match against Jerry Lawler. Oh my God. I mean, why is this even necessary, to be completely honest? Like, all I can remember about this match is Lawler taking his boot off and the announcers talking about how bad his feet smell and stuff. And it's just (laughs) like, dude, why is this? Why are we even doing this? Like, this is so stupid. I told you, this stretch of Brett matches here is not it for me. It's pretty bad, yeah. This the, the middle of '95 is bad, yeah. The I don't even really remember the match that much. I remember all the like the vignettes ahead of it, where like Jerry Lawler was like stepping in like cow shit and like pig slop and stuff like that to get his foot nice and tuned up for this match. <laughs> I don't even remember that. I think I think that's about all we need to say about this match. <laughs> this was the uh, the debut of the all black singlet that would become kind of the staple for Brett through really the rest of his career, man, with the, uh, you know, it was kind of the standard, um, the black with the, the skulls, the wings logo. And and he would rock this at basically every big event from here on out going to SummerSlam 95. Um, so obviously Jerry Lawler loses the kiss my foot match, gets a little bit of, uh, of dental disease from, uh, from the Hitman. So who's he bring in his own personal dentist, Isaac Yankum, DDS. Oh boy. Now we're really on to something. Um I it, it's not a great match, but there's a spot in this match that I still think is one of the most dangerous spots they do in wrestling. They don't do it very often, but when Brett's head gets caught between the top and middle rope, dude, uh, yes. how do you even do like how do you even have faith in someone to do this right without like breaking their neck? Like just yeah. a- after feeling like the ropes and like, I mean, the metal is in them and They're stuff. Stiff, like there's, dude. there's no way I would even remotely consider doing this. Yeah. It it's brutal, man. Uh, yeah. Just 
really, really, really painful looking spot, man. Um, obviously, this is really mostly historically significant because it's it's Glenn Jacobs' debut on pay per view. He would go on to be the Fake Diesel, and then obviously Kane, um, one of the truly iconic characters in wrestling history. So it's fun. Again, another historical footnote for Brett. You know, Kane's first ever pay per view match was was right there against Brett back in SummerSlam '95. All right, moving on to In Your House. Now, this is a match I love, dude. I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping you're with me, man. This is where Brett starts to kind of break out the doldrums of mid-95, dude. He's going up against, you know, we, we talked about him. He was uh, he was one of the Quebecers back in 1994, but now he's the pirate, Jean-Pierre Lafitte. He's going to be PCO. Uh, he had stolen Bret Hart's leather jacket, and they have a match at the September 95 In Your House that, to me, fucking rocks, dude. I love this match. Brett's pissed off, man. It's it's like a little bit of a brawl. I think this is another one of those hidden gems, kind of the same as the Hakushi match that is just awesome and really just shows how talented of a guy that, uh, you know, PCO slash Jean-Pierre Lafitte really is. Yep. So my notes for this match is I think this match is a bit underrated as far as historical historical significance. Um, this is definitely one of the better matches for Lafitte in his career. The one thing I did note about this match when I was watching it, dude, Lafitte re- relied on the top rope a lot in this match. I think he went up to the top rope like five times in this match, if I remember right. Yeah, he was definitely trying to be unique as like a a, a more a, a bigger guy that they could fly around and was comfortable doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is this match has like. Um, it's such an overdone move now, man. And nine times out of ten, it does not have the impact that it should. Go watch Brett's suicide dive from this match, dude. The suicide dive he pulls off of this should be like the textbook for any wrestler coming up the ranks, man. It's like, it looks reckless, but also like painful for the guy receiving the move, man. Too many times to me, the suicide dive just looks like a flying push. Yeah, dude, this is actually what it's supposed to look like. I, I get why they do it the way they do now, because they don't want to risk injuries and stuff like that, but... Yeah, this is how this move was intended to be done, not this bullshit of put your hands out and the other guy catches you and this this is what it's supposed to look like. You know the dude to me the three best modern suicide dives that I th- I think that my third one's going to surprise you dude, but to me the three best suicide dives of the modern era are Samoa Joe, Darby Allen and Sasha Banks. Hmm. Wow. Definitely Go back exp- and watch Sasha Banks, dude. Sasha Banks always sells out on her suicide dives and looks like she's damn near about to break her neck. Well, she doesn't really give a shit about possibly hurting someone, so that's really not that surprising, <laughs> is it? I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't know why you're saying this like I should be like floored that Sasha Banks would do a good suicide dive. <laughs> Samoa Joe does I, I personally I think he does the best one just because of his size and how much emphasis he puts into it. Like he doesn't give a shit when he does one. Like he's gonna put his body on the line when he does a suicide dive. Yeah, you gotta sell out, dude. It's gotta look a little bit reckless, man. And yeah, he does a good job with that. Darby Allen's just such a crazy athlete, man. I, I really don't feel like he gets enough credit for just like how fast he is and how twitchy he is as an athlete. Like Darby Allen's looks crazy, but but yeah, like I said, Sasha Banks always look kind of reckless to me. Seth Rollins has a good one too, but he's like I think he's a notch up below the three that I mentioned. He definitely uses his hands a lot more now too, which I get. Yeah. They don't want him to get hurt, but yeah, you you got to go, dude. It's it's really almost heartbreaking to watch, dude. If you go back and watch like 2015 Rollins, like the difference between him like before and after the big knee injury he has is just really dramatic. Yeah, it's 
it definitely he tuned down his style a lot from that moment on and he needed to yeah he truly has never fully recovered he never got back to where he was before that uh but let's get back to brett survivor series 95 i love this match this is another one that i've if you look online there's a lot of different opinions on this match Mm -hmm. some people think it was a little bit too slow and plotting i think this match fucking rocked dude it was an you know him and diesel they had the match at King of the Ring 94, which ended in a schmoz. They had the match at Royal Rumble 95, which ended in a schmoz. And so this time it was like, we're going to have a finish on this one. It was no DQ, so you know you're getting a winner. It's Brett versus Diesel for the World Championship. And it's a it's a brutal, brutal brawl. A lot of violence, especially considering it was 1995. And Brett comes out as the champ. I love this match, man. What's, uh, what's kind of your, your thoughts on this one? Um, this is by far the best Brett and diesel match for me. Um, Brett sold like a million dollars in this match. The spot where he goes through the table off the, off the apron was absolutely unheard of at this time. So really cool, cool moment in the match. And usually I don't love the small package finish, but this one was executed the right way, so I didn't mind it. Um, yeah, I, I like this match a lot. Yeah, he in his book he talks about that he was at the ironically or not ironically, but surprisingly enough, man, the table spot he was inspired by Sabu of all people. He wow. said that he had been seeing some of the stuff that Sabu was doing on the Indies and thought that he could bring that to WWE because again. We've, we've mentioned it numerous times so far in the pod that the first that Brett was a part of, this was really the first table spot. You know, Hulk and Earthquake kind of had a half-assed table spot at SummerSlam 90, but this was the first one that straight up was kind of like akin to the modern table spots we've seen. And and yeah, Brett goes smashing through that Spanish announce table. Um, plays possum to lead to the uh, the small package finish and, and just a great match, dude. Like like I said, it, it was a little bit slow compared to most hardcore matches nowadays, but still some really good spots. You know, Brett tying up Diesel with the uh, the camera wire and stuff in the, in the corner was really cool. And uh, and Brett had a great look, too. He's rocking the all pink. This uh, Another notable um, thing gear-wise is this was the debut of the velvet jacket that he would wear. So this was kind of his look. All the way through WrestleMania 12, he had ditched the leather jacket and he was rocking this like velvet jacket that looked something like something from like the Beatles, like Sergeant Peppers and the Lonely Hearts Club with all these crazy like lace loops and stuff on it. Um, I'd be down to get a figure of this look as well. Yeah, this is definitely a cool look. And like you said, him wearing the velvet jacket was different than anything we had seen before from him. And like I said, I, I like this match a lot. So getting gear from this match would be would be very cool. Um, yeah, like I said, definitely Diesel and Brett's best match they had ever. So this this match is definitely nostalgic for me. We had my eleventh. This was on my eleventh birthday uh, that this match took place, and I had like a sleep. You know, my parents let me have a sleepover with uh, two. You know, my two of my best friends came over and watched the pay per view with me and my little brother. Um, and it was a school night because you know it was a Sunday night, so that was like. Just, you know, if you're a kid from the 90s, you know, that was like super rare and just such a neat thing to be able to have a sleepover on a school night. So, yeah, everybody crashed. And, you know, my mom brought dropped everybody off at school in the, the Jeep Grand Cherokee that Monday morning. What a special moment when you were just a little slap nut. 
<laughs> yeah, man. All right, let's go to the next month, dude. I fucking love this match also, dude. This is In Your House, Season's Greetings, December 1995. It's the rematch from SummerSlam 92, Brett and the Bulldog. And just like at WrestleMania 8, Brett gets split wide the fuck open and bleeds all over the place. Yeah, and Vince didn't approve of this blade job either, so it makes it much more impactful. Uh, my first note, this is the best match ever at In Your House, right? It's close. Dude, I think we're, I, it's it's in the mix. I think we're going to get to one a little bit later that I think tops it, though. It's definitely but, close. Um, yeah, it's, I would say this is the best one-on-one match, dude. I'll give you that, dude. I, I don't want to spoil what we're going to cover later in the pod. But yeah, I would say this is the best one-on-one match in, in your house history. Okay, that's fair. Maybe that's kind of what I meant by that. But yeah, it's just this is a great match, dude. Him and Bulldog just—I mean—they they knew how to put on a good match. But yeah, finding out that Vince did not want uh, them to do a blade job in this match is hilarious. Yeah, obviously the bar for this was set incredibly high by their classic at SummerSlam '92 that we talked about. But this match is amazing, dude. Again, this is. You know, AEW could take note from this dude that, dude, less is more when it comes to the blood, dude. If you do it every single week, every single show, it gets watered down. But if you only get blood every once in a while, it really fucking stands out and adds to the match. It's got to matter. I think that's that's the biggest thing. Like, there's moments to do it and there's moments not to do it. And I just feel like when you make it matter, it's just it makes it so much more special when it actually does happen. Yeah, go back and watch this one. Like I said, it's not this a whole is lot. A good one. Yeah, it, it's hard to really like, you know, describe like on, on a podcast. You just got to watch this one, man. Just take our word for it. Go back and watch the main event of the December 95 in your house. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the main event of Royal Rumble 96. This is the Undertaker in the Phantom of the Opera gear. He's got the mask on and he's fighting Brad. This is another fun match um, that, that Diesel ends up interfering to uh, kind of fuck up the ending. I, I this is just a really slow match for me, and I feel like it went on way too long. Personally, I mean, I don't, I don't think it needed the time that it got. Um, yeah. And as always, a DQ finish is it is what it is. I mean, I for the storyline purposes, it made sense, but I don't know, dude. It just kind of this being this long and then ending in a DQ finish is kind of. Eh. This is still you, you got to remember. Prior to really January 1997, Undertaker is still wrestling the zombie style. He yeah. is still even even after he came back from you know getting killed at Royal Rumble '94 against Yokozuna, he was still wrestling the zombie style where he doesn't really sell anything and he just plods across the ring, man. So it's it's probably kind of hard to understand for people who are more used to the modern day Undertaker where he's got that kind of like MMA style and has a lot more movement to him. But he was still deep in the zombie gimmick at this point. Yeah, and that's part of it. It's just I, I don't like the the length of this match. Like it did not need as much time as it got. This would be the last appearance of the uh, the mask for the Undertaker. So a little bit of historical significance there. I always dug the mask, man. I thought that was a really cool look, even though it only lasted about a couple months. Yeah, it was neat. All right, going to the In Your House from February 1996. He's in the, the big blue steel cage against Diesel. We see uh, we see the Undertaker pop up from underneath the ring to drag Diesel down and let Brick get the escape for the uh, 
the win, man. What did you? What, what's your thoughts on this one? Yeah, this is not going to be in your top ten cage matches ever. Um, that is by far the moment of this match. Um, but I feel like we need to open the question here. So if Diesel got pulled through the ring, didn't his feet touch the floor first? Ooh, wow. I have never even thought about that, dude. In fucking 26 years of, of analyzing and watching this match, that thought has never crossed my mind. You may be onto something there, dude. The uh, This is definitely super hokey, man. It was all kind of just to set up Diesel and Undertaker at Mania. This was really more of an angle than a match because everybody knew we were getting Brett and Sean in the main event. Um if you've listened to any shoot interviews, you know, Kevin Nash just said that this was his last straw in WWF because it ended with, uh, you know, Brett was kind of already going for the exit whenever Diesel got dragged down to, you know, underneath the ring with The Undertaker. Originally, the layout was that Brett was supposed to hit, uh, or excuse me, Diesel was supposed to hit Brett with a jackhammer. And that's when Undertaker would make his appearance. But Brett didn't want to take Diesel's finish because he thought that it would make him look too weak as a champ. Um, and, and, you know, Vince ended up siding with Brett and Kevin Nash said that that was his last straw with WWF. Yeah. Um, as people's time winds down in WWF, you can definitely tell the way they're used. Um, we'll get into that later. Um, well, here coming up because I got some thoughts on Brett's last couple matches and just how he was used. And Vince is definitely a petty dude. Like if he knows hundred percent you're leaving, he's going to make you look like shit sometimes. So. Yeah, I agree. I, I think Nash had already had his mind up made by now and no fault to him. You know, WCW was offering some crazy guaranteed money for way less shows. So if I'm going to get paid more for less work, yeah, I'm taking that deal nine times out of 10, but I think he likes to use this story as, um, it's kind of just like something to help him keep the moral high ground, even though he knew he was already leaving anyways. Oh, this is definitely his crutch for why he left, even though this is not the reason. But I get why he does it that way. I mean, you always got to make yourself look better, right? Like when you quit a job, you got to make you got to make it look like you had to quit. <laughs> yeah. One thing he said that he pitched that Vince thought was going to be too hokey is that when he got dragged down from the ring, when he came back up, he was going to have all gray hair. Um, <laughs> dude, I personally would have marked out for that, and I, I give that idea two thumbs up, oh, man. What's your thoughts on that idea? That is phenomenal. I've never heard that. That is phenomenal. Yeah, he said he pitched it to Vince that whenever he came back up, he should have had, not the whole thing gray, but basically he should have had a big shock of like silver hair through the middle of his head. You know, They could have just done some spray paint down underneath the ring. Dude, imagine how that would have looked. There ain't no lights under there. It would have just been everywhere. I think it would have been fucking awesome, dude. <laughs> I, I would have marked out big time for that. You don't think they could have done his whole head while they were under there? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they, maybe, dude. <laughs> he comes up. I think, I think this, it was a good idea. There's silver spray paint all over his forehead. <laughs> I think it was a good idea by old Big Sexy, yeah, man. That's great. All right, let's go to WrestleMania 12. 3,600 seconds, 60 minutes, one hour. In WrestleMania lore, these numbers mean one thing. The Iron Man match. While WrestleMania 12 heralded the debut of Stone Cold Steve Austin and Triple H onto the grand stage. 
It is the legendary 60-minute Iron Man match that elevated WrestleMania 12 to the pantheon of greatness. Two superstars, one singular goal, to be champion. Shawn Michaels was controversial with a boyhood dream to be the best. Brett the Hitman Hart, a proud champion and rightful heir to the Hart family legacy. And here we go, 60 minutes on. Shawn is more of an instinct, man. Brett is more of a strategy. Here comes Vincent Shawn Michaels. Both men have given it their all. Does this capacity crowd buzzing? They've never seen anything quite like this. On this night, the genuine animosity between these men proved to be the inspiration for a masterpiece. In a match decided by most falls in an hour, shockingly, there were none. With 30 seconds left, a sharpshooter should have been the end. the full 60-minute time limit. But the man who would become Mr. WrestleMania would not let his dream die. I don't think Michaels gave up. This match has been ordered to continue. In sudden death, the heartbreak kid would find... WrestleMania match of the last millennium by the WWE Universe. The Iron Man match and WrestleMania 12 are forever synonymous with greatness. All right, similar to WrestleMania 11, this is a polarizing match for sure. Um, it's been in the in the conversation here a lot the last couple weeks due to the MJF Daniel Bryan Iron Man match. Um, I'll start, man. I hated this match as a kid just because, one, I think whenever they announced it, I was expecting like a lot more falls and a lot more drama and action. Um, as I've gotten older, though, you know, hearing Brett talk about this match, he and he's described this as his, he thinks this is his best performance ever. Going back and watching it as a more mature wrestling fan, I've appreciated it more. And it, I think it really is a truly great match. Um but I still hate the finish just because I feel like in kayfabe, dude, they should have outlined the rules ahead of time. Like if it was going to go to sudden death, there shouldn't have been a stoppage at 60 minutes. It should have kept on running. Brett should have kept the sharpshooter on Sean and we see what happens. I hate that. Like, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me that Brett had to release the the sharpshooter and then come back and keep the match going, man. Um, and, and for that reason, I do think that, that Brett got screwed this match. So, I mean, this is obviously highly regarded as the best Iron Man match ever. Um, to me, the first 20 minutes of this match were a bit too slow, um, especially after just watching that MJF and Daniel Bryan match. Like, I mean, they literally wrestled for 60 minutes, and I feel like the first 20 minutes takes away from this one. And, yeah, like you said, the rules were not outlined properly them stopping the match made no sense considering it was tied because it wasn't going to be a draw. Um, I feel like those things take away from it a bit. It's still a phenomenal match. Don't get me wrong. And like you, I hated this match when I was a kid. I just dude, an hour for a wrestling match when you're a kid, when your attention span is, 
it's very short, right? So th- this being this long of a match, I feel like if for me, I I didn't enjoy it just because of that reason. Cause and once you got past like 35 minutes, you kind of realize like, okay, there's not going to be any falls. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely takes away from it a lot. I mean, I get that what, what they were going for, but they were just basically showing us on a 60 minute match that these guys really are equals and this is the way we want to make it look. But yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. It, it It's a great match. Don't get me wrong. It's, one of the best Iron Man matches ever, top two with the one we just saw a couple weeks ago. But yeah, it's it definitely has some issues with it for me. So yeah, it's an acquired taste. I feel like it's like it's like the the hazy IPA of wrestling matches. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to to word it. It's just yeah, it's just one of those things that you either love it or you hate it more or less. So Brett ends up losing the strap and taking a eight month hiatus from uh, from WWF, but he comes back in a big way at Survivor Series '96. He's going up against the hottest new heel in the company, Stone Cold Steve Austin, in what I think is just a freaking classic match at Survivor Series '96. Yeah, I mean, do we really need to say more? It's Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin in a match like. Who didn't think this was going to be great? This is right when Austin is starting to ascend to the top of the card. Um, I love the finish in this match. Call back to the WrestleMania eight match. Like, yep. I just, I think this is this is great. I feel like the ending of it was phenomenal. Um, the match itself was really fun to watch. A great match. It's not these two. It's not their best match, but it's still a we'll really solid match. Yeah, and as far as like technical ability, this is, man. They have another classic that we're going to talk about a couple months from now um, that is awesome. But this was just a great technical showcase. And if you want to see what Steve Austin could do prior to his big neck injury at SummerSlam 97, I think this is the best match to see it in. Yeah, 100%. What are your thoughts on the uh, the orange and blue trim that Brett added to his gear for this match? I like it. I think it's cool. I, I felt like it added something to Brett where it wasn't just pink, black, and white. Like we actually I don't know why he only did it this one event. He never brought this back after this one show. Yeah, I don't get that either because I thought it looked cool personally. I thought yeah, it, I thought it was same. a good look. I was happy when they did this figure. I thought it's a great look. And yeah, I, I don't get it, man. They they did some weird stuff with him with his gear and stuff. So yeah, I felt like uh, I feel like maybe Vince or somebody else put the kibosh on it because it did look really good for this one show, but we never saw it again the rest of his time. Yeah. All right, so going to the so that match with Steve Austin was to determine the number one contender to the uh, WWF Championship. Sid and HBK wrestled in the main event at that same Survivor Series show, and Sid got the dub. Uh, Brett wrestled Sid at the December 1996 in your house and lost after some interference from Shawn Michaels. Um, this match kind of just was what it was, man. You got a whole lot to say about this one. No, and that's basically what I was going to say is this match was basically just used as a setup for Sean and Sid a month later. Um, yeah, not a bad match, but yeah, my notes, it says like a lot of in your house matches, it's just kind of there. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Cause yeah, that's, that's basically the- what you said. 
Yeah, it's about the best way to say it, man. Uh, Rumble 97, this one was fun, dude. This has one of the all-time great Brett Austin moments where, you know, Steve Austin's kicking ass the first half of the Rumble. He's dumping folks. He's, you know, getting the the moments where he's just solo in the ring. And then finally, Bret Hart's music hits, and we get just a great reaction of Steve Austin just, you know, shitting bricks as Brett's making his way to the ring. So reading about this now, like that Brett was originally supposed to win this match until Russo changed it. See, this is where to me, and and we're going to get into his match at WrestleMania, which phenomenal, but I feel like at this point they had kind of a feeling that Brett could possibly leave, which is why they didn't do this. Maybe I'm completely wrong on that. But just the way he was booked in this last year, starting here, well, really started in your house the month before, I just feel like they still wanted him to be a big name on the card and obviously do big things. But I feel like they knew they had like an inkling of what was coming. I don't know if Brett talked about it or somebody got wind of it, but I just I feel like you could see the writing on the wall for Brett and WWF. Yeah, it seemed like, you know, he had a few moments, you know, he still had a few few peaks left, but but yeah, definitely I agree, man. Brett kind of had like one arm behind his back that whole last year in uh in WWF, man. I, I do like this rumble, dude. I think this is a really fun rumble, and I love the finish with you know, Austin got dumped, but the but the refs were distracted because cause Terry Funk and Mick Foley were were brawling so hard on the outside. So Austin gets gets back in to to kind of dump him off and and lead into the you know the Brett storyline of everybody screwing Brett. Yeah, it was definitely a it was an interesting rumble to say the least. So the controversial finish to the rumble had led to the booking of a final four match between Stone Cold Steve Austin, Brett Hitman Hart, Vader, and Undertaker. Basically, it was Steve Austin against the three people that got cheated out of the finish of the rumble with Brett Vader and uh and Undertaker. And this was going to be a match in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the February in your house. And it was really, really interesting rules. So it was, you could be pinned or you could be thrown over the top ropes. It was like, kind of like a match and a battle Royale combined between these four. And it was originally going to be to determine who was going to fight for the world championship at WrestleMania. But the Thursday night before this pay-per-view was famously when Sean He'd lost a lot of things over the last few years, but most importantly, he lost his smile and he forfeited the belt. And so this match ended up being for the world championship. And I think this fucking rock, dude, leading to Brett winning the world championship for the fourth times. Uh, you know, you had said that you thought Brett and Bulldog at December 95 was the best in your house match. To me, this is the best in your house match of all time, man. This this fatal four way, this fatal four way adjust match against the, uh, these four guys. Dude, this was such a a cool idea for a match, and I, I I know I speak for everybody, but usually when they do these kind of like one off matches, a lot of times they don't live up to the hype. This absolutely lived up to the hype. Um, just such a cool a cool way to do it. I mean, I, I wish like if we'd have like controversial finishes at Royal Rumbles, we would get like a one off match of this at whatever they do in. February, whether that's uh, what the hell they just do elimination chamber? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I used to have fast lane back in the day. Yeah, I would, I would love to see them do this match again. I thought it was awesome. Towards the end of the match, you could definitely tell Austin's knee was bothering him a lot. Um, but yeah, this is just 
this was a really fun match to watch. And you're probably right. This is probably the best in your house match ever. It's just, it's a fun match to watch. I think this was Vader's peak in WWE as well. You know, he gets his eye busted open, so he's bleeding, but he looks like a fucking badass the whole match. Yeah, dude, Vader, it's a shame he never got his due because what an absolute fucking tank. Yeah, I love Vader. He's the man, dude. Um, Unfortunately, Brett would lose the belt the next night to Sid, but that would lead to our next event at WrestleMania 13. Imagine that for over a decade, you have fought to reach the pinnacle of your profession. Then you walk away. When you return six months later, nothing is the same. I've been screwed by Shawn Michaels. I've been screwed by Stone Cold Steve Austin. You scratch my back and I'll stab yours. There is no respect. Everybody in that dressing room knows that I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Even your fans have changed. At the heart of this change is a man that spits in the face of your every accomplishment. Ever since you came back, you ain't done nothing but cry. He has attacked you physically and verbally. If you put the letter S in front of Hitman, you've had my exact opinion of Bret Hart. This man mocks your legacy. Bret Hart on his best day, can't lace my boots, I will beat the hell out of Bret, and that's the bottom line. Injustice after injustice has forced you to snap. Frustrated isn't the word for it. Now the finger is pointed at you. You're the one who's changed. They say your ego is your enemy. There is only one solution. You must make Austin beg for mercy. But what if Stone Cold Steve Austin wins? What becomes of Brett Hitman Hart then? To me, this is the greatest match in the history of professional wrestling, man. Um, even aside from like the double turn and everything that went into it, I think just the in-ring action is crazy. The mix of of technical wrestling plus, plus brawling is just incredible. And, and the finish is amazing, man. I uh, I don't know, man. I just I love this match with all my heart, and I think it's the greatest of all time. So uh, this to me is what you show someone when you want them to see what a perfect match looks like. The booking, the flow of this match. Um, to me, this is, it, it's definitely in the top five of the most iconic images ever from WrestleMania when Stone Cold is in the sharpshooter and he's bleeding from his head, trying to reach the ropes. Like, I mean, we got the blood from Stone shirt out of this match. Like this this match is perfect. It's just it made Steve Austin, dude. I mean, it it absolutely made Steve Austin, who ended up being one of the biggest baby faces of all time. Yeah, there's. I mean, we don't need to go on for an hour about this. Everybody that likes wrestling has seen this match. It's just, it is literally. I talked about wrestling porn earlier. This is the definition of wrestling porn. Like, if you want to see two guys at the top of their game wrestle, this is what you're going to show people. This is just phenomenal. Yeah, if you're a youngster uh, coming, you know, just coming up, go watch this match. And if you if you dig in the archives of the uh, of Steve Austin's podcast, he's got basically where he does an audio commentary as the match is happening, and it's incredible. So just check this out. Like I said, there's there's absolutely nothing me and Jordan could say that would do justice to it. It's just 
an insane match that leveled up both guys. It set up Brett for, you know, his last little run there in WWE. And really it set up Stone Cold for, you know, the the babyface run of the cinch, man, with what he did um, going all the way, basically from the time of WrestleMania 13 up until he retired. Uh, the next month at In Your House, Cold Day in Hell, they main evented In Your House. It was a match to determine their number one contender. It's still a fun match. It pales in comparison to both WrestleMania 13 and Survivor Series 96. It was really just a way to get over the newly formed Hart Foundation. The match ends in the schmas where Owen and the Bulldog come in and interfere, and Steve Austin wins in DQ to get his first title shot. Um, like I said, it, it's still a fun match, but really not a whole lot to mention outside of uh, the WrestleMania 13 and Survivor Series match. you got any thoughts on the on the Cold Day and Hell event, Jordan? Nothing, man. This It just was what it was. So Brett takes a little time off after this with a knee injury, and we come back at the uh, the Canadian Stampede, where the fully formed 97 Heart Foundation, Brett, Owen, Bulldog, Anvil, and Brian Pillman take on Steve Austin, Goldust, Ken Shamrock, and the Legion of Doom, and a fucking all-timer of an event. Yeah, for a match that you can tell was just kind of thrown together as a lot of in-your-house matches are, Absolutely incredible. Um, I actually went on, when I went on uh, coming down the aisle with J-Bone, me and him did this match because I I, I just love this match. So many good people in this match. And yeah, it's just just a fun match to watch. The crowd is into it the whole time. And yeah, I, I love this match. Yeah, well, go back and watch the entrances, dude. The, the pops for all the Heart Foundation members are incredible, but when Brett comes out, it's just crazy. Just the all-timer of a hometown pop and just a really, really fun match. It was it was such a fun dynamic there in 97 where the Heart Foundation were the biggest heels in the States but were the biggest baby faces everywhere else they went. Yep. I, I will say if they would have done a one-on-one Brett and Austin match, I feel like the pop from the crowd would have been 10 times what it was. Just because, I mean, it's just those two guys wrestling the whole time. But I still enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, it's always watered down when you when you include everybody else. Uh, SummerSlam 97. This is where we went after the Canadian Stampede. This is Brett versus The Undertaker with HBK as the guest referee. Um, you know, a lot of shenanigans between Brett and Shawn Michaels ends up to, with uh, HBK accidentally hitting Undertaker with a steel chair and Brett getting the win to become a five-time WWF champion, tying Hulk Hogan for the all-time record at that point. Um, Brett talked in his book about he thought that the ending, even though it was you know a fun, unique ending he to the match, he felt like it straight up killed his heat because he had been the number one heel in WWF up until that point, but with Sean hitting Undertaker with a chair, he felt like it straight up stole all of his heel heat. Um, what do you, what do you think, Jordan? Did, did this uh, did the ending of this match kind of kill Brett's last couple months in WWF? Hundred um, percent. There is one thing I want to note. This is top five in event posters for me with Brett's Brett Hart standing in the foreground with Taker in the background, surrounded by the purple smoke. Absolutely phenomenal. I actually have this shirt. I just I, I love. It is a cool match, and the pay per view itself is cool. But yeah, they. This was the downfall for me of Brett after this match. Like we're going to talk about these next three shows and it, uh, this definitely takes a steep off a cliff dive. Yeah. I thought the match was pretty fun, but, but yeah, like you said, man, it just, uh, 
it just, it gave all the heat to Sean off the ending, right? Yeah. Like Brett had been such a hot heel, and it seemed like he was completely fucking nuked after this man with the uh, with Sean being the guy to hit Undertaker in the head with the chair, and then they they just gave so much attention to Sean after this. Um, well, the next pay per view, Ground Zero, he's defending against the Patriot, dude. Sean and HBK, or excuse me, Sean and the Undertaker in the main event in just a grudge match while Brett is defending the World Championship against the Patriot in the mid card. Like, how do you explain that? So this is what I mean. Like this, I mean, if this is not foreshadowing them telling you that Brett is on his way out, I don't know what is. First of all, the Patriot, what the fuck are we doing? (laughs) I I, I don't even know. RIP Dale Wilkes. Whatever. I just, I don't know, man. (laughs) It, you have to know that you're nearing the end of your run when you're wrestling the Patriot as the champion on yeah. on the middle of the card. Like, why not put? Yeah, I mean, you could have put like Shamrock or anybody in that spot. Yeah, I. It's not good. The, the, this is this is a really low point in Bret Hart's career for me. Is this night and everything that follows it. And the next month at In Your House Bad Blood, again, Sean is on top, wrestling Undertaker in Hell in a Cell, which is an absolutely fucking incredible match. But Brett, as the world champ, is in the mid-card, tagging with the British Bulldog against the Patriot Invader in a flag match. I mean, it's cool seeing him in the Bulldog tag, but he's he's the champion of the company, and he's not even in a title match at one of your shows. Like, I mean, be, imagine being a fan and going to this show and the main event completely overshadows everything else on this show as it should, because the main event is absolutely incredible. I just, I think what happened at SummerSlam is like you said, Sean got all the heat and he, he went straight to the top of the heap. I mean, he was at this point, he's not even a champ and he's a bigger draw than Brett right now because of yeah. all the heat he got off that match. I, again, they do so much right, and then they they fuck it up in one fell swoop. And Sean getting this hot completely fucked Brett. I, I feel like that toppled with what's going to happen at the next pay per view. Just I don't know, man. Just killed the last six months for him for me. Yeah, yeah. Even though Brett got the belt, Sean was when they got all the juice off of that uh, that SummerSlam main event, and that leads us into Survivor Series. 1997. What is, look at this! Oh, you're kidding me. Michael, are you, you going to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is! Are you kidding me? And Bret Hart is standing in disbelief. 
the Montreal Screwjob, probably the most famous wrestling match in history. Um, You know, I'll go ahead and start, man. The biggest thing for me, dude, I love this match. The match all the way up to the ending was fucking awesome to me. There was so much realism in it. Um, I still mark out when I watch it today, but I remember being 12 years old and, uh, you know, this was what I asked my parents to give me for my birthday. All I wanted was to have Survivor Series 97 on pay-per-view. And I remember watching it and just being like, you know, like I said, I was marking out. I I was like, this shit is real, dude. These guys are really fucking fighting right now, going through the crowd and, uh, and everything. It was so intense, man, and just had a level of realism to it that I had not seen before in all of my like, you know, pro wrestling fandom. Um, I'll do it until the ending, man. And, uh, and even though the ending pissed me off at the time, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of aged well for me. Um, where are you at on the, uh, on, on the Montreal screw job, Jordan? So like I said about the last couple of shows, I feel like WWE booked themselves into a corner here. Um, Brett was so beloved by so many people. Um, Sean just had absolutely nuclear heat. He was on top of the world at this point. I feel like as time has gone on, I kind of feel like there's more to this story that we, we haven't gotten and I, we probably never will get. Um, unfortunately I feel, feel kind of like Vince tried to take the heat off of Sean winning the title here and tried to put it on himself more than anything. So part of me feels like it's a work, but I mean, dude, the end of this match, like Brett was obviously fucking pissed and he mouths WCW and spells out the words with his hands. Like I, I obviously everybody knew he was leaving. Right. I mean, Maybe he was pissed about the way it was going to end. So that's why it just got, it was so nuclear hated by him. But the match itself is great. The ending sucks. Obviously, we all know that. But maybe it doesn't. Like, maybe maybe this is how it was supposed to work. I mean, I don't know. I I just, the way the last eight months that we just talked about went, I just could not see a scenario where Brett was going to stay there personally. Um, the SummerSlam event just took so much away from him. I just, he was the champion and he didn't even feel like he was in the top five of WWE at that point And he was the champion and that's not a knock on Brett. It's just wrestling or WWE was just so much different at this point. I mean, dude, Taker was huge. Sean was huge. Austin was huge. And Shamrock. Dude, it just, he kind of got lost in the shuffle a bit, unfortunately. I mean, Austin just got over so much, and a lot of that was due to Bret Hart. I mean, that WrestleMania match got Austin so over, there was no turning back. And I just, they could have turned him face, but I I don't think it would have mattered, man. I just, I feel like he just kind of got lost in the shuffle a bit. Dude, I uh, you can't take the words out of my mouth, man. Like as the years have gone by, I really believe in my heart of hearts that this was a work, dude, and not a shoot, man. I just, uh, you know, if you think about it, it was the perfect ending for the Hitman character because mm-hmm. he just he really was going to be like a man out of time in the Attitude Era, dude. He wouldn't have fit in nope. with what was going on storyline wise. It just 
you know, even though there was would have been some cool matchups to be had, his character just didn't fit with the Attitude Era. Um, and he got to go out on top, right? He never lost clean. He got to go out, you know, without really jobbing to anybody. And to me, is in my fandom, the three people that care more about pro wrestling and kayfabe than anybody else are Brett, Sean, and Vince McMahon. So if there were three people that were going to carry out a work to this magnitude, it would have been these three. I agree. Yeah, it's just, like I said, it's unfortunate that this is the way it ended. But yeah, looking back on it, I, I don't mind it as much as I used to, honestly. I mean, the match itself is phenomenal if you cut out the end. Um, and yeah, it, you're right, dude. It was it was time for him to go. He was not going to fit in the Attitude Area at all. I just, I don't know where Brett would have fit in there. I feel like he would have got lost in the mid-card, honestly, and that would have been a shame for him. Dude, Austin and The Rock were taking over the WWE no matter what happened after yep. this point. I mean, it was going to happen. Like, th- it just aligned the way it worked. Austin was already so over. I just, I don't know, man. I just don't feel like there was any turning back from WrestleMania 13 on. It just... It happened so fast. Yeah, it was Austin and Rock and then Undertaker taking his character to an even like darker place and Triple H taking the DX gimmick to an even raunchier place, dude. That's kind of where they were going. I just feel like this this was like the perfect storyline ending for the Hitman. Yeah, I mean, it's it sucks. And I mean, still, you're going to always look back at Brett's WF run as very favorable. Um, from his time in the Hart Foundation to him being on top of WWF with the title. It just, the last year, dude, I just, I, I said it when we started talking about this last year. It just, it's not the same. You can tell. I mean, yeah, he was the champion twice, but you could tell it wasn't the same at this point. Like him winning the belt was more of an achievement, like a career achievement than it was. Uh, a note of him being on top of WWF. I just, yeah, it, it was never the like most significant thing storyline wise, man. Um, as much as I love that, that survivor series, 96 to 97 story arc. Um, yeah, it, you know, 94 was definitely the peak of Brett, the Hitman heart and WWF, but it was still, you know, still fun. 97. It was great seeing the, the heart foundation back as a faction, um, and you know, it just kind of all came crumbling down here at Survivor Series 97. The crazy thing is if you believe it to be a shoot, right? Like I think me and Jordan are both on the record now is at least entertaining the possibility that this was just all the work all along and it was all kayfabe. If it's a shoot, it really is kind of crazy and tragic that, you know, Vince McMahon put all this heartache and deciding between these two guys, Brett and Sean, who just absolutely could not coexist. When, if you think about it, you know, Brett's gone in November and then after March 98, Sean's gone for four years, dude. Both as, as much, you know, as much oxygen as both these guys took up in the main event scene of WWF, within four months of this match, they're both gone. Yeah, it's that's really crazy to think about. Um, yeah, dude, it's just, yeah, and, and Sean and Brett were the top of WWF. I mean, it's just, it is absolutely insane to think how this last year of Brett's run went and what happened to WWF after this. I mean, I, I feel like everybody, I mean, obviously Brett's WCW run didn't end the way we all wanted, but I think it all happened for a reason. Honestly, I, I feel like 
yeah, Vince just, he was torn, man. Like you said, I just, I don't think he knew which way he wanted to go. Um, Sean was back. That was like his, his toy again and his new toy. And he, he wanted him to be on top of the world and it's understandable, man. It just, it's the way wrestling is right. Like a lot of people don't even get to the top of the mountain and Brett was definitely on top of the mountain for a couple of years. And it was a, it was a fun run and it was fun to talk about. Definitely. You ready for some listener mail? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Time for listener mail. Jordan, do you want to uh, kind of switch it up and, and take lead this time? Yeah, let's do it. I think uh, some of these questions are going to be more directed at you considering you're the Bret Hart aficionado of this crew. All right, let's kick it off with Bret Sharo. What are some memorable or your favorite Bret Hart promos of all time? Um. So again, Brett, I think he was always a solid promo, not a spectacular promo. There's three to me that really stick out and, and resonate um, all these years later. So the one he did, and they were all kind of in the last year there in WWE, ironically enough. So he had a really good one right before he uh, wrestled Steve Austin in his return match at Survivor Series 96. He talked about how um, even though it's not a church, that to him Madison Square Garden was holy ground, which makes sense because Brett and the Hart Foundation always, you know, had a lot of big moments there in Madison Square Garden. And for whatever reason, it seemed like outside of Canada, New York was the other place that Brett was just crazy over in. So that one was really cool. Um, I love the work he did, the Raw after WrestleMania 13, where he reunited the Hart Foundation. Um, you know, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog were actually tag team champs at the time, but they were also feuding. It's a pretty cool little storyline. And they were having a one-on-one match, and Brett came out and breaks up the match and just goes on like a five-minute monologue um, talking about, you know, what the fans have done to to their family. And Owen Hart is just classic. I don't know how Brett didn't start laughing because Owen's just hamming it up, acting like he's on the verge of tears, um, you know, when Brett's talking about all the stuff he did for him when Owen was a little kid. Uh, you, you remember that one, Jordan? I do remember that. I don't remember it word for word like you do, but I definitely remember it. <clears throat> Yeah, go back and uh, go back and watch that one, man. It's great. And then um, the one he did before WrestleMania 13, after he got cheated and lost the steel cage match against Sid for the championship, where he just went off talking about, you know, frustrated is not the goddamn word for it. (laughs) You know, that Shawn Michaels screwed me. Stone Cold Steve Austin screwed me. That goddamn Gorilla Monsoon sued me or screwed me and was just going on and on. about it was basically he really hit his breaking point for all the bullshit he dealt with in the last year or so in his career. Um, so I, I think those three men are probably my three favorite Brett Probos. I got nothing to add to that because uh, I only remember one of them. So we'll just uh, move to the next question. Uh, James Cody Canterbury, what part did Goldberg play in the Montreal screw job? <laughs> So he didn't have a direct hand in it, but I think his general presence was already being felt <laughs> in the world of wrestling. And I think him just kind of being alive, man, like caused the screw job, dude. It's similar to um, if you ever watched the Muppets take Manhattan, um, not the original one. It was like, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was basically a sequel to the classic Muppets uh, take Manhattan that came out in the mid nineties. And Kermit was kind of having a, a depressed period in that movie And he started thinking like, you know, he never should have been born. And he imagined what life would look like um, if he hadn't been born. And it showed like five years in the future, which was 2002 at that point. 
and it showed the New York City skyline. And sure enough, the World Trade Center was still there. So if you run it back, that basically lets you know if Kermit the Frog was never born, um, 9-11 would have never happened. Jesus. And I think that uh, I think the Montreal screw job uh, is kind of the same thing if, you know, if Goldberg never had, uh, had been a thing. So you're saying Goldberg virtually kicked Bret Hart in the head during this match is what you're saying? Yep, exactly. Yeah, Goldberg caused the Montreal screw job just like Kermit caused the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Okay, I get the, I don't get it at all, but okay. Did you, were you at all expecting to hear a Muppets reference or, and or a 9-11 reference on this uh, podcast? I'll be honest with you, I didn't think either one of those were coming with that question. I knew this was going to be a smart ass (laughs) answer, but I didn't expect it to go that deep. So, well done, Seth. Yeah, that's what you guys can expect on Pod Warriors Day. We're taking you guys down rabbit holes, surprises around every corner. All right, Tony Barker's got a couple for us. Uh, if the unthinkable happened and Bret Hart was indeed christened as Cowboy Bret Hart when he arrived in the WWF, what do you think his ceiling would have been, and could he have could he have had any of the success he ultimately achieved? <laughs> I don't think he would have had as much success. I do think he would have eventually ascended to being a main eventer, but it would have been a much longer, um, a much longer run. You know, Brett really, there wasn't a whole lot of character to the hitman. He was just himself for the most part. I think if he's playing a gimmick like that, I think it would have taken a while. Um, but I'm a big believer that eventually the cream always rises to the top and, and Brett would have found his way to the main event, but it wouldn't have been, uh, it would not have been quite the direct line he had from going tag team intercontinental championship world championship picture and then staying in the main event for pretty much the rest of his time there yeah i i I agree with you i feel like his character him being the hitman definitely had a huge part in his career just because of who he was i don't know if the cowboy gimmick would have necessarily got over the way hitman did but i mean like you said it wasn't going to change his wrestling style and the way he wrestled so eventually he would have found his way it probably would have just took a little longer than it did um at the way it was. Uh, if Bret Hart never went to WCW and the screw job never happened, what do you think Bret's role would have been and who would you who would you have liked to see him feud with? Dude, it's hard to say, man. It's really because you can't say straight up that Bret wouldn't have worked in the Attitude Era because honestly, like the Attitude Era, it really kind of, they were already planting the seeds for that shortly after he left after WrestleMania 12, you know, in 96, 97, they were really getting a lot more edgy. Um, I think the edgy stuff Brett could do, I think the, you know, towards 98, 99 and 2000, really the peak of the attitude era, there was a ton of comedy though, right? Like the Austin McMahon stuff, that stuff was straight up like slapstick comedy. Um, and there wasn't a lot of like serious storylines. Um, you know, the, the, they'd get serious in the matches and have some brawls, but, I think the the storyline stuff, it's just hard for me to picture Brett fitting in that way, man. I'm sure, you know, he's good enough. I'm sure they could have made it work and they could have had, you know, some more some more run with the whole Heart Foundation gimmick. I think that still could have worked. But Brett was just always so serious. He always took himself so seriously um, out there in the ring that I think some of the comedy stuff would have been tough for him to to blend in. I, I, I can't really put my finger on exactly how that would work. Now, opponents wise, man, two guys that I would have loved to seen him work with, um, would be Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar, man. If he, if he makes it another five years, you know, if he goes, assuming that he never takes, gets the big injury, like he got from Goldberg at the end of 99 and he can wrestle into the year 2002, I would have loved to seen a, uh, a Brett and Brock match. I think that would have just been tremendous. Yeah. Um, 
I would have liked to see him work with The Rock as well. I just I feel like those two would have had some good chemistry in the ring um, in the Attitude Era. But like you said, I don't know how well Brett's personality would have fit in during that era. Just just based on what everything we know now and what it was, it's just I don't know, man. It's it's hard to imagine Brett being in in a comedy match or anything like that. So I I think. All things considered, I think him going to WCW really was the best thing for him, even though it ended poorly with Goldberg. But, um, I mean, he, he got paid. He, and he won the world much, title. Yeah, won the world title. Had, you know, had some good matches with Booker T and um, and with, with Chris Benoit. And, like I said, I think those three years kind of set him up for a really, really comfortable life after wrestling. I mean, he was doing good in WWF, but it wasn't nothing like – that money. I mean, he basically got, you know, close to $10 million for three years of work there with WCW. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it seems like Brett's done a good job saving his money. I know he's probably still making a killing on merch and stuff. Um, but he's not, he's not had the sad life that, you know, unfortunately we see so many of our, our favorite wrestlers from the eighties and nineties live after wrestling. He's not having to do like the Ric Flair thing, like, you know, shucking and jiving and basically pimping himself out to cash checks. Like Brett kind of shows up to stuff when he wants to show up. That's why it's kind of special when you do get a chance to go, you know, get an autograph or meet him. Cause he's not at every single one of these conventions. Um, yeah. Like you said, man, it's in a lot of ways, dude, the, we mentioned it earlier in the pod, the Montreal screw job was kind of like the perfect ending for Brett and WWF, man, as much as it sucked and pissed people off. And for years it made me mad, but you know, taking a step back and looking at it, like, you know, everybody knows he didn't lose. Like they had to cheat to get the belt off of him. And he kind of got to walk out of there with his head held high, man. I think, I think in kayfabe, I don't think you could have booked a better ending for Brett in WWF. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent with you. So, uh, one more from Tony Barker. He says, in your opinion, was Brett in fact too damn selfish? Yeah, we, we talked about this when <laughs> I think I asked Jordan that same question, man, when we did it earlier and, I think he was, man. And, it, you know, he probably just didn't trust Owen, even though it would, we'd come to find out Owen would typically lay an egg when the when the lights got the brightest. Yeah. All right. We got two or one from Kendon Hill. If you could have 86 to 97 Brett fight anyone on the current WWE roster, who would it be and what type of match would it be? I think I'm still going Brock, man. I said I want to see it in 2002, and Brock is still awesome, dude. I kind of want to see, um, I kind of want to see Brock and and Bret Hart go at it like no DQ, man. Like so that way Brett can get some weapons and kind of even the playing field. But yeah, I think Brett and Brock would just be incredible. How I'm about gonna, you? I'm gonna go him and Rollins. Honestly, I think uh, that'd be fun. Him and Rollins would be a really fun match. I mean, they both worked a quicker style. So I, I I just feel like they'd have a lot of chemistry in the ring. As far as type of match, I'd be fine with just a one on one match between those two guys. Honestly, I think it would it wouldn't need all the shenanigans and outside stuff. So I, I'd be fine with just a one on one match between those two. Yeah, Rollins has a lot of similarities to HBK as far as in ring style goes. Also, so yeah, you're right. That'd be like peanut butter and jelly, man. The way those two guys would would match in the ring. Yeah. Uh, our buddy Zach Hertzler's got a couple. Uh, Heart Foundation versus the Bloodline at Mania. Who do you have winning? Dude, I gotta go the Bloodline, man. The supporting cast behind Roman. I'm assuming we're going, we're we're gonna keep Sami Zayn in the mix, and we're going straight up Usos, Sami, Solo, and Roman against uh, you know five on five against Brett, the Anvil, Bulldog. Um, 
Owen and Pillman. I think that Uso, I, I think the Usos are the the deciding factor, and I I think they win it, man. I mean, Solos Co is a beast; like he could neutralize the Bulldog. Sami Zayn and Brian Pillman's probably a wash. I think the Usos are are just going to crush Owen and the Anvil, um, and and they'll be able to help Roman beat Brett. I was going to say, well, there's only one Heart Foundation member left, so I think the Bloodline probably wins. Wow! Then. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> but I agree with your assessment. Anvil and Owen are not holding a candle to the Usos, so I just I feel like that's the where the mismatches stands. So, and Pillman was <clears throat> a shell of himself in ring by the yeah. time the Hart Foundation formed. He was really more of a manager than a wrestler at that point. Yeah. Uh, what Brett entrance gear do you want in figure form that we haven't gotten yet? That's a really good question. Um, I think go back to that SummerSlam 90, him and the Anvil with the, those black and pink jackets. Yep. I'm I'm probably the wrong guy to ask this because any Brett figure that gets released without the jacket, I'm finding one of the figure clothing custom people and getting it made, man. Um, but one thing I've never gone and done is get the, get the Heart Foundation jackets going for him and the Anvil. So I'll go SummerSlam 90. James Cody Canterbury at, uh, answered his question and said Mayhem 1999. I'd have to go back and look, man. I don't it's, remember that dude, one. If I, in WCW, I mean, and to be honest, dude, I really do not like Brett's WCW run outside of a few bright spots. Um, I remember him always just rocking this, the plain leather jacket, dude. Like the that, that jacket he was wearing basically throughout 97. I don't remember him mixing it up too much, but I'll go back and check out and see what he was wearing at uh, Mayhem 99. Okay, Johnny JB hit us with the question. Thoughts on Brett versus Owen at WrestleMania 10? We we already went through this about how much me and Seth both love this match, so um, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on it. Do you want to hit on anything, Seth? No, just, you know, like I said, I appreciate the question for sure, Johnny, but yeah, we, we said everything we need to say earlier on the show. It's the definitely the best opening match of WrestleMania ever and arguably the best opening match of any pay-per-view of all time. Brian Topley hits us with all of Brett's history is erased except for one match or rivalry. If match is too hard to choose, what stays? So I said, you know, WrestleMania 13 against Austin was my all time uh, favorite match, but I don't feel like, I feel like you got to have the backstory for that match to mean so much. If, if it's, you know, in a time capsule by itself, I don't know if it works as good because it was the. I mean, the match was great, but it was really the double turn that made it so compelling. If I had to just pick one, I think I'm going SummerSlam '92 against the Bulldog. Man, I know that's a weird choice because he loses the match, but I just think that match is just a technical masterpiece. There's no real backstory. All, all the backstory you need for that match, you're gonna get from the announcers, just knowing that these guys are brothers-in-law um, fighting for the Intercontinental Championship and. It's just a perfect match. So I'd say SummerSlam 92 with the uh, with the Bulldog. How about you, man? I think I'm going to go with rivalry, and I'm going to go with his rivalry with Sean. I just yeah. – those matches are just all so good. I mean, those guys had such chemistry in the ring. Like I said, they were equals in, earlier in the show. I just – I feel like those two just always had such good chemistry that I think I could watch them wrestle 200 times and never get tired of it. So I, that's who I would pick. Great choice. Okay, Sam Rosenthal, if there was one Brett match you could have seen live, which one would you pick? And then did either of you ever dress as him for Halloween? 
<laughs> I ne- never dressed as him uh, for Halloween. I think the hair was just so unique, man. I think that would have been just a bridge too far. I don't know how I would have pulled that off. I think any kind of wig setup uh, just would have been goofy. Um, if I could be for any match, I think the screw job, man. I, you know, obviously it's in the mix for the most historically significant wrestling match ever. So it'd be cool to be there for that. But I love that match up to the, before the finish, dude, like the way they're brawling through the ring, it just had an electric feel to it, man. Like that. And the audience just seemed supercharged. So I would have loved to have been in the building for the Montreal screw job. I'm going to go Owen and Brett at WrestleMania 10, just because that means I would have been in the building for uh razor and Sean as well. And it's in the garden. Like, how much bigger can it get? So I think I would go with that. Yeah, great pick. WrestleMania 10 is a much better choice. Survivor Series 97 is basically shit outside of the main event. Yeah. Where would Brett be on the disgruntled old wrestler rankings? That's from Sambro. Uh, <laughs> he's up there, dude. He's mellowed the last couple of years, man. He's definitely mellowed the last couple of years. He's been a little bit more... Um, open to embracing the 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 modern generation of wrestlers, and I think a lot of the guys that are are breaking in right now, man, are like just. It seems like Brett's kind of had a little bit of a renaissance with people coming in um, the last couple of years. I think AEW has really shown a lot of love to Brett, man. The way they work and stuff, and it just for whatever reason it seems like that roster. You got a lot of Brett fans and Brett disciples up and down it. You remember Brett was actually the guy there to. Uh, unveil the AW championship way back on double or nothing, 2019. So that's still a, a most wanted figure of mine, man, the AEW Brett from uh, when he came out that night. Uh, so I, I think he's mellowed out a lot, but for a time there, like 2015, 2016, he was probably number one with a bullet. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, dude, he had a problem with almost everything WWE related for at least a couple of years. So he was he was definitely number one, like you said. He's mellowed out a lot, and I think as he's gotten older, and I mean, less and less of his people are still around. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be morbid, but I mean, no, I think right. I think that mellows you out a lot on life. Like, I think you kind of kill the grudges that you had, and you just kind of move on. So he, um, you know, it, it's been basically like swept under the rug of history now, but. 2016, Brett started his own podcast. I want to say it was called like the Sharpshooter Podcast. It was him and his son Blade doing a wrestling podcast together. And it only lasted like six episodes. And Brett pulled the plug on it because he said he felt like he was just, it was just too negative. He felt like he was just being too negative on, um, on you know, the current product and stuff. Because that's what it was. They were really, for whatever reason, they didn't dig into like Brett's archives and stuff. This was before the whole Conrad Thompson like podcast revolution. It was just Brett giving his thoughts on the weekly WWE TV. And he just said that he felt like it would, it had just turned into a platform where he was just being overly critical and stuff on the, the modern day wrestlers. And, and he didn't want to be that person. And he actually canceled his own podcast because of that. Yeah, he, uh, he definitely had his fair share issues there. So, uh, also from Sambro who currently is closest to Brett's style. That's a good question, man. Um, closest to Brett's style, dude. So I would say um, it, the revival, man. I think that's who, as far as like the entering work, like, you know, being being stiff, have you know, you always got that you could brawl in your back pocket, but you really try to just be technical and make everything matter. 
that I see a lot of shades of Brett's work in the revival. Obviously, um, you know, we know Dax slash Scott Dawson, whatever. I, I just call him bald, you know, bald revival or FTR bald and FTR hair is how I told him apart because mm-hmm. it's a pain in the ass keeping their name straight between NXT and AW. Um, but yeah, I, I, they, I see a lot of shades uh, in Brett uh, of those guys. As far as main eventers, man, CM Punk, obviously he, he was a huge Brett disciple. So he, he had a lot of callbacks to Brett back when he was still doing his thing. But, but who knows if that bitter bastard's ever coming back again or not. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said on that one. Um, one more from Sambro, big dog question. What is the best Bret Hart figure ever? <sighs> Favorite is without a shadow of a doubt his first Hasbro figure. That's like that's my all-time favorite wrestling figure. I played with I was so excited when I saw it was coming out, then actually get it at, you know, Toys R Us. Um and just played played with that thing like crazy, man. Like I just I had so much fun playing with that little, you know, that little miniature version of uh of Bret Hart. So that one's definitely my favorite. Obviously it's not the best though. There's been plenty of a great Brett figures come along since then. If I had to pick one that stands out head and shoulders above, um, I would say the defining moments, man. The first one that Mattel did way back in the, uh, I think it was either the second or third series of defining moments figures. Um, the packaging is just beautiful. It perfectly captures 97 Brett in the all black singlet with the soft goods, uh, leather jacket. And, and yeah, man, I, I, I think that's the one. I, I was going to go with Defining Moments, but we can't have the same answer. So I'm going to go with the ringside exclusive one, the pink with the pink jacket and stuff. I just think that figure is phenomenal. It's just so well done. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy they're re-releasing it in Ultimate Edition form so everybody else can get it. So Yeah, we'll see what that Ultimate Edition ends up looking like once it's in hand. It's definitely got potential to be the best ever. I may do a little... Uh, a little figure surgery man and take the head sculpt off that ringside one and throw it on the, uh, that ultimate edition, man. Cause I think that that head sculpt still holds up. Obviously it's not true FX and it's not going to be as razor sharp as the new ones, but you know, we went on and on last night talking about the issues Mattel's had, uh, again, Bret Hart's face just right. So sometimes those older scans work out a little bit better. I know it seems like it's been a long time, but that was still tonight there, bud. Well, oh. that wasn't last night. That was tonight. <laughs> I guess. Well, I've blown it now, dude. So we can break kayfabe. We, if you're still, if you're listening at this uh, point of the podcast, you're about three and a half hours in. So I totally just blew it, man. Fucking MJF, I'm not, dude. I totally just blew our fucking gimmick. Man. <laughs> we ended up taking a pause from the cause last night and uh, decided we because you guys did go all out on. Um, on sending us, you know, just some really awesome listener mail. We knew we wanted to spend some time, didn't want to rush through it. But it was about one o'clock in the morning by the time we wrapped up Survivor Series '97 talk, and uh, we're looking at a stack of questions. And, and Jordan made the call, called the audible to let's just punt and do it the next night. So, yeah, we'll, uh, I don't want people to think I got fucking dementia or something, dude. So we'll just we'll go ahead and just fucking call it a shoot, man. This is actually the night. This is we started on Tuesday night, and we're into Wednesday night now on recording this thing. It's the Pod Warrior screw job. <laughs> I blew it, man. I was too damn selfish. I'm going to kick your knee out of your knee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we got one coming in from Tyson Neal Trevino, TNT. TNT. Dynamite. Uh, what would Brett's career be in WCW if Goldberg hadn't kicked him in the head? WCW was already a flaming coffin on roller skates heading downhill yeah. at the point that happened. So. His, w, his shit in WCW would have been about what it was, you know, fucking 
various flirtations with the NWO, going back and forth between heel and face and occasionally having a decent match up until, um, you know, they got bought out. Basically, I mean, WCW only lasted like a year and change after after that happened for Brett anyway. So I think uh, I think it would have kind of just ran its course. I don't think I don't think he would have been. I don't think WCW's fate would have been any different if Brett didn't get hurt. Yeah. Basically, like you said, a year after this, it died anyway. It was basically a cardboard ship out to sea at this point. So I don't, I don't really think it would have mattered either way. And and Brett had already done what he was going to do in WCW at that point anyway. Yeah, so. he'd been champ. He had a really, really emotional match to tribute uh, Owen Hart after Owen Hart tragically passed away. I will say this, man: assuming they could let bygones be bygones. The invasion would have fucking cracked if Bret Hart is the leader of it, dude. Like, imagine Bret Hart's coming back, leading this faction to go against this guy and this company that fucked him over. Like, dude, sign me up, man. That would have been incredible. Yeah, that would have been awesome. That would have completely changed the invasion angle angle completely. So, Hell yeah. Uh, Brian Vermeer asks, what is Bret's best feud story-wise? I think it's got to be this story with Owen Hart, you know, coming up as his little brother. They have basically a three year long period where they're feuding on and off. Owen, they were never outside of each other's orbit, right? Like some, you know, they obviously they they moved on to different people, but they were always around each other. Um, And then ultimately reuniting and having just a really, really fun, entertaining run back together that last year. So I think his story with Owen um, is, is the one. Yeah, I agree. I just that story had so much depth to it and like you said they're they're brothers so that's already tied into it, but yeah, it's just fantastic. Uh John Swallow hits us with did Brett screw Brett? <laughs> Thanks for the question from our fellow uh from our fellow Pod Foundation member. Definitely check out Coming Down the Aisle podcast. Uh, I don't think he did, man. I, I think he held his ground, and I think history is kind of sided with Brett. He definitely probably could have handled that situation. So, again, I told you guys uh, when we talked about it on Survivor Series 97, I think the whole thing was a work the more I think about it, man. I think it's just the the biggest work ever, and Brett, Sean, and HBK – Brett, Sean, and Vince are the only three people in on it. But let's assume it's a shoot. Brett could have handled the situation with a little bit more finesse, but you know, he was backed against the wall and it, it was personal, man. And I think he just kind of had to stand his ground and yeah, he did end up screwing himself over, but I think he was in the right, even though that's how it ended up playing out. Yeah, I agree. I, I just, I mean, Brett, Brett was who he was. And like you said, he's going to stand his ground no matter if he thinks he's wrong or not. It's just, he's just a proud guy. And I mean, history has really, uh, I think it's been kind to Brett, honestly. I feel like yeah. people appreciate did, him more now than they did back then, honestly. Yeah, and he didn't, he just didn't want to lose to Sean, dude. And yeah. according to anybody back in that time, Sean was just an insufferable prick, man. Like, Brett his, was on record, dude. He was. He said that he offered to drop the belt to Undertaker, Steve Austin, Ken Shamrock. He said he'd lose the belt to whoever they want him to lose it to. He just did not want to lay down and do the job for Shawn Michaels because he knew that Shawn would be unwilling to do, to do the same for him. Yeah, Shawn didn't really hit his good guy phase until he came back after that four-year layoff and found Jesus uh, <laughs> and then wrestled with God. So, yeah, it's I agree. I just, I mean, everything you hear about Shawn is he was just a prick back then and I mean, dude, when Marty Jannetty has some negative things to say about you, you know, you got to be kind of a dick. So, 
If Martin Jannetty's got the moral high ground on you, <laughs> well, you're doing some bad hold shit. Hold on, dude. I never said that. Don't let's not take it too far. Uh, James Cody Canterbury had one more. He said, "Is the photo associated with this post his most iconic look?" Um, I don't know for his most iconic look, man, because he's got. There's so many similar looks he had. We, you know, we talked about that all throughout the show, man. How he kind of just—it was constantly evolving, dude. I think, like, if you just tell me Bret Hart, I'm probably picturing and the All Black from '97, man. It seemed like that's what he was wearing for most of his big matches down the stretch. So, I think the All Black um, singlet is his most iconic look for me. I'm going with the All Black uh, wrestling singlet with no pants or anything from Canadian Stampede. By far, <laughs> by far his most <laughs> iconic look. Yeah. Uh, Brett Vermeer hits us with, did Brett really have sunny days? I don't think so, man. Uh, the, the reason I say no is because, uh, you know, one definitely a huge character fall that Brett had that he's admitted to is he was not faithful to his wife. Um, if you read his book, Hitman, My uh, my Real Life in the Cartoon World of Pro Wrestling, he, he details in the book, you know, different times that, you know, he cheated on his wife with, you know, groupies or whoever. And he's very frank about, you know, him and Sonny were good friends. Um, he was like a little bit of a mentor to her, but like, you know, she would play with his kids and stuff. And I just felt like if there was some truth to that, it, he would have admitted in this book because he admitted cheating on his wife with other people and him and his wife at the time already split at that point. So, it, and, and we know pretty much everything that's happened in wrestling for the most part. So if, if it would have happened, um, if it really happened, I think it would have come out by now. So I don't think he had sunny days. Let's be honest though. Eighties and nineties wrestlers. A lot of those guys didn't have sunny days. I mean, the majority of the people that were in a relationship ended up ending it because they cheated or drugs or something along those lines. So eighties and nineties wrestling was not kind to these guys. No. Or like, you know, like Steve Austin, just beat the shit out of your wife twice. Yeah. So, and, and look how much everybody loves Austin now. <laughs> Dude, Steve Austin is definitely somebody that's lucky. He came up when he did. Could you imagine if oh. that came out now, man? Like, he he's like an all timer dude of somebody who like and, and and I'm with it man like I think he's admitted that you know he was going through a really fucking rough patch per, like in his mental space at that time and we've never heard nothing negative about him since that like you know 2004 2005 time frame so I do forgive him for that man and I can I can accept him and still be a fan of his with a clear conscience but with just the culture, how it is now, like, dude, if that, if something like that happened, like if it came out that Roman Reigns beat the shit out of his wife, dude, like he'd be canceled. We'd never see him on TV again. Yeah. He'd, he'd be uh shot out to the moon and never returning. He'd be in uh parts unknown with ultimate warrior. Yeah. Steve Austin is very fortunate that, uh, it was kind of, the internet wasn't as fucking intense, man, to see, to take people down whenever, whenever all that shit happened. All right. We got one from Jason. It's either Koenig or Koenig. Sorry if I bushed your last name. I can't I can't remember what it is. Uh what would it take for you to rock jorts like Brett? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in another like five years I'll be there, dude. I still I'm still you know, I'm still at the age where I'm holding on to a little shred of be, of, of being cool. And the jorts, I just that's one thing that it, it's really like never come back all the way, dude. So 
I, I don't know, man. I, like I said, give me another five years and I'll, I'll rock some Levi Jorts like the Hitman. I mean, we all rocked them in the 90s. That was what was popular. Oh, yeah, popular. they were the shit, dude. Yeah, Gets, definitely, dude. It, it's first day of school. I'm rocking some fucking Jorts that go down slightly past my kneecap and like a Reggie Miller replica jersey. Some uh, Tommy Hilfiger Jorts with the, the Carpenter <laughs> style. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, and the little the little Carpenter loops got the Tommy Hilfiger oh, logo yeah. on it. So everybody knows you fucking stunting. I'll never forget like... Looking back on it, what the hell were we thinking? I wore some uh, Tommy Hilfiger overalls the first day of school. Like, what the fuck were we thinking, dude? That did not about, look cool at all. <laughs> dude, looking back, I'm glad my parents didn't let me get them and there's no pictures that exist. But I remember being obsessed with wanting to get a pair of Jinkos, dude. Like, I wanted fucking Jinkos <laughs> so bad. For the younger listeners, I think Jinkos are actually fucking back yep. for making them again, but Jinkos were these just <laughs> gigantic fucking jeans, dude. Like, you know, they, they were just, like, super... Fu- it was like a fucking bucket. That's how wide, like, the legs on these jeans were. Um, and they'd always have, like, some crazy patch on, like, the back of them of, like, a dude doing graffiti or something. Just, just search J-N-C-O, man. You'll see what we're talking about, dude. And like all like you know like all all like the fucking troublemaker kids like the really really fucking cool kids dude were wearing these it wasn't like a preppy thing but like you know like you said the kids that were from the wrong side of the tracks were wearing these things and they was would typically end up being like the cooler kids right and i remember just begging my mom to get it and my mom's you know like no sethy these are gonna look stupid <laughs> and even though my mom's not any kind of like fashionista she was 100 percent on point man like the jinkos were fucking ridiculous yeah, those are that is not a good look at all. They're basically parachute pants except in jean form, like not good at all. All right, we got one more from Tristan Stewart. What match of his would you say is overhyped in your opinion? Or if you don't have one, name one that's underappreciated. Overhyped Brett match, man. That's tough, dude. I feel like I, I feel like they're all either like properly hyped or or underhype, man. I know you were a big fan of it, dude. I actually don't love the first Survivor Series match with Shawn Michaels, man. I think that had more to do with the build than the actual bell to bell action on it. But I just that match felt very cool to me, dude. They felt like there was like no heat. It was just a match for a match's sake, man. I know a lot of people um, like you like really, really love that match, but it's still a good match, man. Don't get me wrong. It's actually still a really, really good match, but that one is not like a super memorable one. Like that's way down the list. If I'm like firing up the the peacock and I want to, I want to find a Brett match. So I'd say survivor series 92. I think that's a good choice. I got nothing for this one. I just, I don't know, man, we went through all these matches and I, for the most part, enjoyed them. I hate the Bob Backlund matches, but that's just cause I don't like Bob Backlund. That really has nothing to do with Brett. So um, I think pretty much everybody hates those. The WrestleMania 11 one is universally despised and the survivor series 94 is kind of like a mixed bag. That's it. All right. Thanks again, guys, for the listener mail. And thank you if, uh, you know, you stuck with us all the way through, man. This is definitely one that's uh, probably meant to be listened to in sections. I don't think anybody's going to sit down and go three and a half hours plus on one podcast. But this was an idea of mine. Jordan, salute to you, man, for buying off on this. It was a lot of fun. And now we know if we need to, man, we could uh, we could crank out three hours on a podcast. So we got a lot of great Pod Warriors ideas in the hopper. We're going to keep bringing you these special episodes, trying to hit, you know, about one every month or so where we just pick one topic and and go freaking deep on it, man. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And like I said, these ones, these, these are shows that um, you can go back and listen to and they're not going to age. So 
If this is your first time tuning into a Pod Warriors show, all you got to do is go to the Chick Foley Show feed. We made it really easy for you. Um, just like WrestleMania, man, we number all the Pod Warriors episodes, so they kind of stand out in the feed. So uh, definitely encourage you to go back and check those out and give us some feedback. Let us know if there's one from the from the back catalog that you found that uh, that you enjoyed. Uh, as always, Jordan, I'll turn it over to you for some nope, closing nope, thoughts on this nope, episode. Nope, no, no closing thoughts from Jordan today. This is a Seth episode. This is this is your Bret Hart baby. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you had me on to speak a little bit about Bret Hart, but you get to give closing thoughts on the Bret Hart episode. All right, I appreciate that, man. I I just love Bret Hart, man. I love what he stood for as a character. I love the way he carried himself, the look, the presence, the, the matches. Um. I was just thoroughly entertained, and that's what I still go back to, man. Like if I'm if if I'm you know got a few cold ones in and don't got nothing else going on on a Friday or Saturday night, I'm firing it up and I'm watching SummerSlam '91. I'm watching um, you know Survivor Series '95 against Diesel. I'm finding a Brett match, and and I've never ever been disappointed, man. I, I he's just you know an awesome guy. I was lucky enough to meet him at WrestleMania 31, which thank you Jordan for encouraging me and Sheena to go to that. And it was awesome, dude. Lived up to the hype, man. He was just super gentle guy, man. Very friendly. Took the time to talk to me and Sheena. Gave Sheena a free autograph on the low. Um, and that's just, a, you know, a really, really special memory for me getting to getting to meet him. And I just encourage any wrestling fan, man, go back and watch this guy's stuff, dude. It holds up. It definitely holds up. And it's just a shame that the monthly pay-per-views didn't start up until really his last two years in the company. Cause there's not a lot of Brett matches, man. His run was pretty short, dude. If you think about it, his run as a solo star was six years, dude. It was 1991 to 1997. It was nine years ago when Seth Rollins turned on the shield. So just, and, and just think about the runs that Cena and Orton have had. So in the grand scheme of things, dude, Brett's solo run was really just a shooting star across the WWE universe. But the stuff that he put there on film, it holds up to this day. And I encourage you guys to go, go watch some Brett and let us know what, what's your favorite matches. Um, really all I gotta say, man, he's the best there is the best there was and the best there ever will be. And I hope that we have excellently executed this episode of the pod warriors. (laughs) 